This week, we chat about leprechauns, dolls, and other stranger things. We dish out what popular new show is coming home for Christmas, and Giallo fans need to make room on their shelves for a delightful new release. For the main event, we're back in versus mode for the first time since episode one. This time, we're talking Suspiria with a deep dive into Argento's original 77 classic and Guadagnino's polarizing yet celebrated remake. Avoid old Greek ladies, don't go to dance academies in Germany, and whatever you do, just try not to sigh. We're about to turn radio on its head. Fuck you, Tom York, with a new episode of Terror in Podnito. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. <laughs> Guys. Hello, Palmer. How y'all doing? Good. Week before Thanksgiving. Yeah. I'm like already full. <laughs> I'm preemptively full. Yeah, My panic is setting of, in. A lot of turkey eating going on over the next like few days. Why are you panicking, Sam? Because I'm hosting my first Thanksgiving. Oh, that's right. For yeah. your for your in-laws. Yeah. My family's like, fuck this, we're getting out of town. <laughs> Good luck not burning down your house. Oh, I thought your family was going to... So it's just the in-laws. It's, it's just the in-laws. Oh. Like, okay. My parents are going out to Vegas to see my sister. My other sister, I think, is doing stuff with her in-laws. Right. So they're like, fuck you. Good luck. All right. Well, fuck you. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing, Palmer? I'm all right. I'm all right. It's been a long week. I'm ready for this it's week. It's been a very long yeah. week. I'm ready for this week. I'm ready to get into my stretchy pants and eat as much food as I can over the next 10 days. Absolutely. Yeah, that's pretty much, I think, every like American's goal Yeah, <laughs> for the next few days. Ben and I already did Thanksgiving with his family, so we're like done. Oh, you've already oh. started. I'm done. Well, Except for like Friendsgiving. Yeah, you got Friendsgiving. I have no family obligations, which is very nice. Why did you guys do Thanksgiving so early? Um, because we had some family in town. Uh, okay. All so right, we just decided right. to get sense. together like last week. That makes sense. That makes sense. How, how was that? Was it good? Delicious. Was it delicious? It was so good. I bet. I bet. Rumor has it your stuffing is amazing. One of these days I'll try it. It's incredible. That sounded strangely sexual. My stuffing. <laughs> I'm going to try the stuffing one day. It I've had it. It's delightful. It is delightful. Yeah, yeah. So, considering this episode, we're talking about a reboot, and we're in the midst of a reboot central. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got even more on the horizon. We got Leprechaun. We got Chucky. We got what? Even more than that knocking on the door. Probably we've got a billion of them. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering though, with all this talk of reboots and abandoning sequels that came before them, because that seems to be the trend right now. Mm-hmm. What are we? Uh, what do we think of sequels that su- that succeeded? What are sequels that succeeded to us? See, when I was writing my list, I actually had a ton, but I narrowed it down to two. Okay. I picked four. You picked four. Okay. I'll go fast. All right. So the first one I had was Hellraiser 2. Okay. Hellbound. I think that... It's a different director, obviously, but it was still... The screenplay was still done by Clive Barker. I think that that movie did a really good job of kind of continuing the narrative that we saw in the beginning, but there was a lot more of, uh, like, exploration about the Cenobites and, like, why they do what they do. And they t- kind of take us into their world, and it's, like, really fucked up and creepy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think the practical effects are really good. Um, the set design is awesome. 
And I think there's also like buckets of gore. Yeah, there's a lot. I feel like there's a lot more gore in the second one than there is in the first one. Absolutely. I remember, right? Like I just remember that being just like a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. And the first time I'm watching it being like, how the fuck did this manage to get an R rating? <laughs> right. And I like that instead of like kind of doing the same thing, they did it like a continuation, which, yeah. I, which I appreciated. Yeah, yeah. I also really liked the first one. So um, that's gonna be a hot take on popular opinion. But I really like and it's, we're not talking just it doesn't have to be number two, right? It can yeah, be any, yeah, any, okay. any sequel. So uh, Halloween 3. <laughs> <laughs> season, season of, of the witch the witch yeah Actually, people give, i saw a lot of love for that yeah so did i really yeah, oh good i, love for that I feel like every time i say it, people are like mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um and i didn't actually know until i kind of researched it a little bit a while ago that when because john carpenter and deborah hill they produced it they did not direct it right and they had an idea that um you know to take michael out of it and that every halloween they would have a different story set during halloween that would be kind of like an anthology series yeah. which i feel like is like really ahead of its time um but it didn't go so well with the fans but i don't know i thought it i thought it was good yeah it's unique memorable scary i think it also fully feels like a halloween movie it takes you mean like a seasonal movie a or like seasonal, halloween as a franchise no sorry sorry a seasonal halloween okay. movie right. yeah I instead of being it. set in california in like the spring, it's actually yeah. filmed <laughs> at Halloween. Yeah, uh, and also kind of feels like the Twilight Zone to me. It's like horror meets the Twilight Zone meets like Body Snatchers. I don't know. I kind of yeah, kind of yeah. I, yeah, I, I see that. I like it. I like it. But yeah, a lot of people probably didn't, wouldn't agree with that. Eh, I think you'd be surprised. Like I said, I saw a lot of love for that. This I year. think that when it came out, people did not like it because it wasn't what they expected. But I think now people have become more fond of it. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's definitely one of those films. I mean, there's a lot of horror movies that are like that though. Like think about like. I, I don't know how many fucking countless films out there. Devil's Rejects being one of them when it mm-hmm. got when it was released, critics bashed it left and right, but it's oh, like yeah. really thought fondly of nowadays. I Absolutely. Mean, so there's plenty of that kind of stuff. You said you had a third one though. Or, oh, or I had four. a bunch. I mean, I had I had no, he had four. Oh, I had a ton. I've got four. One of them also is on your list, Palmer. So I'm gonna leave that one off because uh, I saw what you said about it. and It's pretty much the same reasons for me. Oh, okay. Um. So mine are Evil Dead Two. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, special shout out to the new Evil Dead, which is never going to get made, uh, or never going to get the sequel it deserves. Um, <laughs> Final Destination Two. Oh my God, that was on my yeah. list too. Primarily because so the, the 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 lumber truck still fucks with me to this day. Yep. Like driving on the highway, if I'm behind a lumber truck, I have to get out of the lane. You know what else um, is really good? Final Destination Five. Because remember, it went so meta, and they ended up on the plane yeah. from the original. That was also a really good one. Um, is that the 3D one? No. I think that was oh, okay. four. That was four, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. the fifth one was, yeah. Um, I thought I've seen the fifth one. And, and lastly, and this one, this one's kind of a stretch, um, Silence of the Lambs. Oh, okay. Technically, it's a sequel to Manhunter, the yes. movie. Yes. And technically, it's a sequel to Red Dragon, the book, which they made a movie of after Silence of the Lambs. I would never have thought of that. That is a good one. Yeah. Uh, and then... The the only other one on my list that you're going to cover is Aliens. Ah, okay. All so right. you didn't have so, Scream Two on there. I did not. I did. I also did not have. Um, I know you did last summer too. I still know I still what you, know did. you did. Last I also summer. did not have Urban Legend Director's Cut. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> now, if you want to talk like from a director's point of view, um, and you want to go through like all of Wes Craven's movies, right? Um, I love The Faculty. Yeah. I also had Halloween 4, or not Halloween 4, sorry, um, Friday the 13th final chapter as a, okay. a really good one, but right. it didn't make the top top two. All right, all right. Yeah, mine uh, mine's going to start with Aliens, uh, so it wasn't a horror film as much as it was an action flick, and uh, I don't know, James Cameron kind of took it over and, and 
turned it into something more on pace with like Terminator Two. He James Cameron did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but so that, it's, who's that, James Cameron? It's, <laughs> it's definitely a lot more action filled than Ridley Scott's original villain, or vision, though. Uh, but there was like. A lot of horror there still, uh, scares of plenty, and like xenomorphs got more and more crazy. So we, like, as an audience, we got to see more of them. Got to see them get more fast paced, a little more like, uh, less less lurky, and more like up in your face. And I kind of appreciated that, especially like as a kid when I watched it for the first time. So it less it left less to the imagination. But uh, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't necessarily care about it. What? What? I'm just thinking of all the other movies in that franchise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm yeah. like, I really enjoyed Alien vs. Predator. Uh-huh. The second one was hot garbage. The Oh, a Requiem? So yes. they could make it R? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then you? there's a Prometheus. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't which know, I, really which I actually that, really yeah, enjoyed really in the it. theaters, but I will wholly admit that's not a good movie. I liked it. It's I, okay. I liked it. I liked it. Uh... Exorcist 3 is the other one for me. Yeah. Uh, so it's such a breath of fresh air after the second film. <laughs> um, and I'm on the record for hating that movie so fucking much. Like, the second one? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Really it. Yeah, it's uh, not good. And, uh, it's really bad. I actually didn't bother. Because I disliked The Exorcist 2 so much, I didn't bother with 3 until much later in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's like a big regret of mine. Because like, when I watched it, I was like, holy shit, this is like a genuinely fucking amazing movie. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, What's his name? William Peter Blatty actually directed that. The writer of the original Exorcist book oh, actually directed uh, the third one. Hmm. Um, so it's more of like a detective, slow burning, like murder mystery uh-huh. thing than it is like a horror movie, really. Per but se. they did have that lady crawl up on the ceiling, which is totally creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's like one of the best like jump scares like in all of cinema history is in that as well. Um, and there's a pretty good surprise reveal for fans of the original Exorcist yes. at the end too. Um, so all that kind of culminated into that being my my probably my second pick on the. Well, I mean, obviously my second pick on the list, but uh, just in general, it was the first one that came to mind. And mm-hmm. uh, there, as I thought about it more and more, I was like, oh, there's others that could make this list, but I'm just going to leave it on there because yeah. it's a good one to nominate. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's like this, like I said, resurgence of reboots, and it's just interesting to go back and kind of look at the sequels that we as fans thought were successful yeah and like if they did because like the exorcist tv show kind of abandoned the second and third exorcist and just picked up where the first one left off and so it's just interesting like watching how horror is just like all right let's go back to the source material that was really successful yeah and get rid of the rest of it even though there were some hits there were some hits in there i'm expecting like with especially with aliens the Alien franchise kind of getting sold off from Fox and becoming a Disney property. Yeah. I expect that that'll probably get the yeah. reboot treatment here shortly. It's also interesting to think of some of them that are sequels to movies that wouldn't be considered horror. Like, the original wouldn't be considered a horror movie. Or in the case of Aliens, like you said, how that's you know more action-based. Because mm-hmm. I know we've talked a whole bunch about Glass. Split, I thought was really great. Um but Unbreakable was certainly not a horror movie. Yeah, no. that was definitely an action flick. Yeah. Well, I guess more like a drama. A drama, yeah. I would say a drama. A traction yeah. flick. A tra- <laughs> a drama I mean, that was all done by the same director. So yeah. It, yeah. it's interesting to see how some of these kind of change as they go along. Yeah, well, absolutely. Might, I feel like, especially with M. Night Shyamalan, for instance, like, wherever he's feeling in his career, you know what I mean? Because he's done horror movies, he's yeah. done action movies, he's done sci-fi movies, and like a... You know, like not fairy tale movies, but close to that. Yeah. So I feel like it just has to do with you know what he's fucking feeling like. Yeah, yeah. Which I feel like if I was a movie director, that's what I would be like all over the place. Yeah. I wouldn't just do horror movies, but I would not do a rom com. <laughs> 
Unless it like the mood struck, right? And right. All of a sudden you throw a curveball at the end and like everybody dies. I want to work with Ryan Gosling. <laughs> yes. Just I'll just be driving down the road and you'll think, oh, what a happy ending. And then bam, a satellite drops out of the sky and hits the car. It would that's be, just the end of it. I feel like if I was going to do a rom-com, it would be very dark and like very black. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, I thought it was an interesting little way to start the podcast yeah that was good yeah i actually had a really i had a, i had a fun time thinking about it i also yeah, came so up with a ton of shitty ones <laughs> yeah i had a for lot. another day that's still like have like there's it's funny like how many shitty ones popped into my head that i like fully acknowledge are shit shit movies oh yeah but i still like have an affinity for oh well, I, like i i when you I, yeah. when you mentioned this i had to ask whether we were limiting this strictly to horror movies just the first two movies that popped into my head were not horror movies. What were the first two that popped into your uh, head? Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Okay. And Die Hard with a Vengeance. Okay. 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 All right. All right. Well, you guys want to segue into some horror headlines? No, I just yeah. want to keep talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> We got uh, our trailer for Leprechaun Returns, and it looks like a lot of fun. It looks so fun. It does. It does. I showed it to my wife actually last night, and I was just like, and like even her, like she was kind of like grinning while we were uh-huh. watching it and everything. And and it just, I, I don't know. I'm I'm actually like pretty excited for this movie. To There's come a out. creepy gas station in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> Listen to what whoever works there says. Yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> Although no, he didn't say anything. No, right? he's like, like, yeah, we got yeah. everything fixed up. Oh, now. he did. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Uh, but last week we talked about the new poster that it got, uh, and this week we're talking about the trailer. So uh, it was about what a minute and a half, maybe almost two minutes, uh, and featured Lyndon. Our first look at Lyndon Porco mm-hmm. assuming the role of the Leprechaun, taking the reins from Warwick Davis. And I gotta say, he actually looks pretty good. He looks really good. Yeah. He does. He actually even sounds like him and everything. And you know, like I'm sad that we aren't getting Davis back, but I think Porco's gonna be able to hold this on his own. He did. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm. I don't. I don't know. Like I was a little skeptical when they first yeah. made the announcement, but. I think he sounds good, and he doesn't sound exactly like he's mimicking him. Like I think he's taking his own take on it, which yeah. I. But it's, he's not getting too much artistic license with it. Yeah, I think it's really good. Yeah, I think it's a good balance. Yes, a good balance. Um, so we got a glimpse of our isolated sorority house as well, with and and some some excuses for why they have no power cell service, right. <laughs> anything like that. Uh, but the best part is that it doesn't seem to be taking itself very seriously. There's plenty of jabs uh, and humor, like abounding. Looks um, like there's some fourth wall breaking. Yeah, that seems to be actually quite a bit of that, which yeah. I'm all right. Which I'm all right with. <laughs> I love uh, it. And there's a lot of some, like, really actually gleeful, I think is the best word to describe it, looking kills mm-hmm. in terms of just, like, I was watching them and I was like, okay, I'm expecting that to be, like, pretty gory, but at the same time, like, I'd get a chuckle out of it. Type yeah. Of thing. I've already got, like, seven ideas in my head for how the solar panel kill ends up. Oh, I know. They cut oh, it right before. Because it's just going to sever him right in half. And like, that's yeah. that was, like, my initial thing, but I was like, what if they go the Final Destination route where mm, the, the that glass plate that crushes the uh, little kid yeah. and you just see him, like, fold in half, like... My mind started racing wild when I saw that, so yeah. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that one, that the one I think that had me most excited from the trailer was was the guy getting pulled into the mailbox. Oh, I just yeah. want to know where that's gonna go. <laughs> Ooh, I'm imagining a lot of blood. Yeah, yeah. So am I. <laughs> um, I'm basically imagining that wood chipper scene from Fargo coming from a mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I'm pretty excited to check out this Lionsgate reboot of the series, and it'll be available on VOD starting on December 11th. That's not far away at all. Nope. No. Nope. Um, that'll actually be right before we take our break, so we might be able to have a chance to talk about it a little bit on the cast before yep. we before we take a break. Uh, 
Child's Play remake got a poster, cast information, a release date, and a Chucky teaser. <laughs> have just, every, here, have everything. Have yeah, everything. They just dropped a fucking bomb on it. Like, everything except for the trailer was pretty much, like, thrown right at yeah. us all at once. And uh, I have to say, it's been really interesting watching the public's reaction go from viscerally against it to all of a sudden being like, I like that poster. Maybe I'm on board with this. Um but things have been pretty quiet on the in the child's play front since the initial backlash that I just mentioned. Um, but we just got a ton of details about it. So the the release date is June twenty first, twenty nineteen. Um, it's placing it firmly against the remake of both The Grudge and of the sequel to Toy Story, Toy Story four. Which toy has a better weekend that weekend? Did you see the pot shot they took at them on Twitter? Yes. No. Yeah, they tweeted. They tweeted, "See, see you uh, that weekend or something," and a whole bunch of knives uh, and, like a, and a cowboy hat. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, so good. Yeah, yeah. The cast list includes Aubrey Plaza, uh, who's set to play the film's mother, and Gabrielle Bateman, who's set to play the son. Uh, it'll be interesting seeing that they don't use the names of Karen and Andy Barkley. Uh, so maybe they're getting ready to change because they just refer the, to them as mother and son. Yeah. So maybe they're going to be changing the names. Um, um, and maybe they're just trying to do that to separate it more from what Don Mancini is continuing with with his franchise because he's not he's not ending his line of it. No. Um, so I, I maybe that's what they're doing to try to separate it separate things a little. Well, now bit we have more. a buddy doll. Yeah, <laughs> and a new buddy, mom. A Wi-Fi enabled buddy doll. Yes. It seems. Yep. Um, <laughs> I was kind of imagining it'd be like a robot. Wi-Fi seems better. <laughs> It'll be interesting watching Aubrey Plaza play a mother, though. Yeah. Oh yeah. Especially since like the kid, the, her kid's supposed to be like ten. Yeah, like I'm like still 11. rewatching Parks and Rec, so in my head she's always she's like, always twenty one like, years yeah. old. <laughs> <laughs> She'll never be anything more than that in my head. Like I feel like she's in her thirties though. Yeah, she's our age. I think. Yeah, I feel like she's she yeah she's thirty four. Um, so she could have a ten year old. Yeah, she could. She could. That's okay. It just like doesn't compute in my that, brain. Yeah, it's weird to reason. think of. Um, she doesn't have that maternal instinct in Parks and Rec. <laughs> she doesn't have the maternal instinct in anything in like, she's been in. No. Like anything at all she's Well, been that's in. why she got her kid this doll from Buddy. Yeah. yeah exactly. Here, here's, something, to here's something Talk to play to with. This. Yeah, leave me alone. <laughs> but uh, the cast also includes Beatrice uh, Kitsos from Fox's The Exorcist, Ty Con- Consiglio uh, from Wonder, and Brian Tr- Tyree Henry from Atlanta. I love him. Um, so it's actually got a pretty interesting cast list. Um, the Child's Play poster was also revealed. It showed Chucky is no longer a good guy doll, but instead Buddy, spelled B-U-D-D-I. Um, and it has a whole bunch of modern features like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, like Sam mentioned. In that it has an eye like the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it has the Wi-Fi symbol above it. Yeah. Above the eye. Uh, do you guys think this is going to go in some weird direction of, and like try to have some social commentary on like invasion of Technology. privacy and shit? Maybe. It could. I mean, it would be poignant. It would. It would be a, a hot button issue if they did it right. Because um, I mean, there are. I feel like every at the end of every Christmas, which is like right around the corner, there's some like either child monitoring system or yeah. like new Wi-Fi enabled toy that gets hacked and it turns yes. out that like creepers are listening like to your watching kids. your child sleep. All yeah. the buddy dolls Super are going to get hacked creepy. and take like weird photos of people that they shouldn't be taking. Yeah. So they're clearly ditching the voodoo aspect and going down with a technology route here, but I don't know what the catalyst is going to be for Chucky turning evil yet. So maybe it is just going to be a serial killer controlling the doll <gasps> and like hacking it. That would something. be so different, which that would w- work. It could. Yeah, it would. Especially because there's change. two separate things going on at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I also noticed that it has a K logo at the top of the bottom of the box, and I think that's supposed to be the company's logo. So I did some more digging into it. Oh. Um, the Child's Play movie official 
uh, Twitter account actually hosts an explanation for this quote, by, and it's supposed to be by Henry Caslin, who I'm assuming is the CEO of this company. Okay. And it's the one building these toys and says, every child in America deserves a best friend, so we built one. Um, and it's interesting because I also, during my digging, found out that this movie was initially called The Caslin Project. I thought every child in America deserved food. <laughs> Maybe. So, so we gave it to them. <laughs> Did we? <laughs> you might be able to eat the buddy doll. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I don't maybe it's edible. I don't know. <laughs> the Caslin Project. All right. Yeah, it was initially called the Caslin Project. So I don't know. We'll see how that kinda goes and, and what direction they're they're going in with that. But uh next up filming is wrapped up on the season three of Stranger Things. So here we go, folks. Yeah. It's that time of year. Everybody. It was disappointing when it didn't come out around Halloween, I will say. Yeah. That's, I missed that's it. True. That's true. But uh everybody's getting hyped about being strange. Cue some cue some doors drops. People <laughs> strange. Drop one of those in there in a little bit. Uh but don't get too hyped yet, because we're not getting this until next summer, apparently. So that being said, now that all of the cast is kind of tweeted and instagrammed that they've wrapped filming Mm -hmm. we can expect the marketing hype to start going full force with this um well they announced season two during the super bowl last year right wasn't that i believe so didn't they announce at the same time they announced uh the cloverfield paradox (laughs) yeah yeah so i think you're like it's very possible that it like we we don't see like the first trailer until the super bowl well, remember they said they announced Cloverfield Paradox, and they were like, "Also, it's like available as soon as the Super Bowl's over." Right. What happens if they drop that bomb? It turns out they're playing the long con, right? Dude, and if it's that happened, like, like before, way before, if that the happens, members just said, "All right, we finished up." Bam! Surprise! Here it is. I think it's very. <laughs> it's po- not going it, to happen. But no. <laughs> if that did happen, though, it's very possible only- that Netflix crashes. Cloverfield had to do that because no one else would have watched it anyways. <laughs> well, so, we got your Stranger attention. Thing doesn't have to do that. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, you're right. You're right. Uh, but it'll be interesting to kind of see what they what they do with the marketing for this uh, as as we get closer to it. Uh, next up, Sabrina. Speaking of Netflix, is getting her own holiday special. Season two hasn't even been fucking announced yet, but apparently Netflix is happy enough with the show to air a holiday special. The special is going to be called "The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina: A Midwinter's Tale," which I think is a fucking terrible name. Yeah, that's dumb. I think it's just a really, really bad name. The Midwinter's Tale or the whole thing? And just all of it. Well, I, I, it's yeah, very yeah, wordy. The mid, the mid yeah. The title, is, I'm like, Ugh. it's wordy, and it just like, I don't know. It just doesn't. And why Midwinter? Why was Sab- why is Sabrina a show all about fucking Satan going to be the Christmas celebrating? Special? Well, because well, what happens is they're going to have it's their the winter solstice. Their coven, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was gonna say their coven's gonna have some weird other ritual. Which- Technically, I guess. Would and be so she can't go out with any of her friends because they're going to celebrate Christmas and she has to go celebrate some satanic holiday. Yeah, maybe. Because solstice is not satanic. It's not. No, it's really it's not. not in any way, shape or form. I just like it's just very interesting to me. Um, we also got a few screen grabs, but they don't really illustrate much. Uh, it just looks like more Sabrina. I was just really upset there. And none of the stills was a Baphomet statue. <laughs> I was really that would be interesting I was, to see. I was really hoping that they just like put that in there. <laughs> like, hey, fuck you. Yeah, that would be pretty funny. It'll be interesting to see if that's already in there, at all in there. In this yeah, episode. yeah. Um, if they're in the school, like, what they do about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it sounds like this is going to end up being kind of like a monster of the week episode. Uh, the synopsis is like all covens, the church of night celebrates the winter solstice when families gather around the Yule fire to sing pagan carols and tell ghost stories. But the holidays are also a time for guests and visitors, both welcome and unwelcome. 
you never know what might come down the chimney. So I hope she breaks up with her boyfriend. Yeah, so do I. Because <laughs> a stupid face and that screen grab. Just I know, right? That's what really more. just angered me. When I saw it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, what do you guys think they're going to be dealing with? You think it's going to be something like Krampus? Krampus, yeah. It's going to be Krampus, some Krampus esque type of. I mean, it comes down. I feel to like we could always use some more good Krampus. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'm not and that's very much like a folklore thing. Yeah. yeah. Yep, uh, and that's also right around the corner. It's twelve fourteen on Netflix. Maybe some like sort of elfish creatures. You know what I mean? Elf on the shelf comes to life. Like, it's like, like a, demon Santa. Like a de- or like, like, like imagine like a, like a smaller version of like demons that travel in like a pack. You know, like a swarm, pa- elves. like a pack of swarms. They're all just like I'm just imagining like a bunch of like wolf like <laughs> like elf hybrids just like hunched over and snarling like. That would be kind of cool. maybe kind of some creepy. sort of animal, yeah. Werewolf elves. Where else? Well, there's a, a, a <laughs> tweet your ideas to Netflix. Maybe they'll maybe they got time to edit it. They greenlight everything. <laughs> that screen grab of Hilda. She looks very scared. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the, where she's holding her rolling pin. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, finally, on the list, uh, Giallo fans can rejoice. Sergio Martino's All the Colors of the Dark is getting a 4K Blu-ray release. Severin Films announced that they'll be bringing the fan favorite Giallo to Blu-ray with a host of special features. They'll be doing a companion release as well, which is fucking. Four hours long. Dang. And nothing but trailer, deep analysis of Giallo trailers. <laughs> Sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm like, I feel like I'm the only person who would find that interesting. Uh, besides yeah. you and you. Yeah. <laughs> and um, maybe some of you. Yep. And so both of them are getting uh, special edition dual slipcases. Uh, some details include that Severin Films um, is going to be doing a two disc set that features 4k scan from the original negative a cd soundtrack and the following extras they're coming to get you the alternate u.s cut color my nightmare an interview with director sergio martino so good uh, a last of the mohicans an interview with screenwriter ernesto gastaldi uh giallo is the color that's also more interviews and audio commentary with kat engler uh who is the author of all the colors of sergio martino who uh he's he's there's there's a lot of giallo experts out there yes. that I'm realizing. Oh yeah, like really fucking like have written like goddamn dark doctor's theses on these. On yeah, I read films. one of them Absolutely. when we covered when we did our giallo yeah. month, yeah. and that. Yeah, this is the thing that people are very passionate about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, It makes me so much more nervous whenever we call for anything giallo. There's papers (laughs) written about Halloween. There's papers written about everything. Yeah, that's true. There's papers written about everything. So there's no official release date yet. Uh, However, the collection will be going on sale Black Friday. So get your uh, wallets out, giallo fans. Yeah. Make sure that you're not buying all those TVs and all those gifts for other people on the Black Fridays. Save some money for yourself. Do you guys go Black Friday shopping? No. No. I do certain for certain things. Like, I'll start scouting out, like, stuff, like, weeks in advance. So once the flyers come out, like, I'm, I'm there, like, all right, this is actually a good deal. And then I'll talk to Kelly about it. I'll be like, do we need this? Do we need this? Do we need this? We'll usually whittle it down to like one or two things. Like generally we end up getting, honestly, during Black Friday, we buy Christmas decorations. Christmas decorations are dirt cheap on Black Friday. <laughs> the last like three big fucking Christmas decorations <laughs> the we got, lamest thing we got on heard. Black Friday. I don't even fucking care. <laughs> I don't go Black Friday shopping because there's nothing I need. The only, like the only things that I would need, I'm, I mean, you might be able to get them, but. It's all like springtime stuff. I'm for a the Cyber house. Monday gal myself. I also Cyber don't like, Monday deals are never as good though. They're not. I mean, that's that's the tax you pay for not having to leave your chair. But you don't have to leave your chair for Black Friday stuff ninety percent of the time. 
Yeah, they do have a lot of stuff online for oh. that now, I guess. Oh. Yeah, like, if it's, like, at Walmart, which usually most of the good deals are, you can just fucking buy it on your computer. I need and a new TV. Bad. Well, I'll, I'll, I don't know, I'll, I'll shout out some deals to you if I see them. Thank I you. Pay, I do pay a lot of attention to those TV I know, deals. I need a new TV. My TV um, sucks. Well, we'll get you one. Thank um you. But, yeah, it's going on sale Black Friday. <laughs> <laughs> During Black Friday sales. So, get ready. Maybe it'll be on sale. Maybe. I doubt it. <laughs> uh, but that wraps it. it up. Sam, you ready? It's time for the now sleep. Let's do this thing. It's another quieter week. Just good. But things are steadily picking up, and I, I feel like the movies that are coming out I'm more and more interested in as we get closer to the end of the year. Uh, first up, it's one that actually came out on VOD a little while ago. Um, I've been trying to lock down an actual release date for it. Apparently, it's got a, a limited theatrical release uh, on the 16th. It's called He's Out There by Screen Gems and Unbroken Pictures. Uh, on vacation at a remote lake house, a mother and her two young daughters must fight for survival after falling into a terrifying and bizarre nightmare conceived by a psychopath. Uh, kind of played a little bit like Hush um, from the trailers that I saw. But it's like a very like dream sequency looking. Type Everything's of thing. It's very, very hazy. Bizarre. It kind of reminds me of like Silent Hill. You know, yeah. like you can be in like the same place, but it looks completely different. But, like every shot looked real hazy. Like there is some dirt or some shit on the camera lens. Yeah, uh, kind of weird. Uh, next up, Netflix's new movie from Bloomhouse, Cam, hitting on the sixteenth. Uh, Cam is a technology-driven psychological thriller set in the world of webcam porn. Follows Alice, an ambitious cam girl, who one day discovers she's been replaced on her show with an exact replica of herself. As the copy begins to push the boundaries of Alice's internet identity, the control that Alice has over her life and the men in it vanishes. Oh, sorry. Alice's internet identity vanishes. That was a weird sentence. (laughs) (laughs) While she struggles to regain what she's lost, she slowly finds herself drawn back to her show and to the mysterious person who's taken her place. Starring Madeline Brewer from Handmaid's Tale. And And Orange Orange is Black. Black. The synopsis sounds a little weird, but the trailer is amazing. This movie it looks, looks great. so bizarre. This movie looks really good. Um, and lastly, for this week, we've got The Clove Hitch Killer getting a limited in VOD release on the 16th as well from IFC Midnight and NQ. A shocking revelation turns a teenage boy's world upside down in this chilling look at the evil that can lurk below even the most wholesome surface. Tyler Burnside, played by Charlie Plummer, is a Boy Scout volunteer at his local church and the dutiful son of an upstanding community leader dad played by Dylan McDermott. Only one thing troubles the quiet Kentucky town he lives in, the unsolved murders in which 10 women were brutally tortured and killed by a psycho known as Clove Hitch that rocked the community more than a decade ago. When Tyler discovers a cache of disturbing images in his father's possession, he begins to suspect that the man he trusts most in the world may be Clove Hitch and that his deadly rampage may not be over. With unrelenting tension, director Duncan Skiles crafts a picture-perfect vision of the all-American family and then piece by piece rips it to shreds. This also sounds good. Yeah, that is a very interesting synopsis, right? Yeah. Hmm. It hmm. the hmm. the trailer for it definitely starts out with like that wholesome kind of like Americana do, 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 feel to it. Yeah. yeah, like kids playing baseball or whatever. And then, of course, he opens up a little box and there's a bunch of photos in it and everything. The whole tone of the trailer changes. Um, sounds like what was that? Oh, Kevin Spacey movie, American Beauty. Yeah, sounds like American Beauty. Kind of, sort of. It's funny how true that movie turned out to be. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> oh, if that's Nina Sorv- sad. I love that movie, too. <laughs> if What's-Her-Name was a boy, though. Yeah. <laughs> and, not, and not a young lady. Uh, but we that's did- all we got this week. 
Oh, okay. That yeah, that's all we got this list. week. So uh, a bunch of stuff that's all going to be available on VOD, so you don't even have to leave your home to watch any of this. Which that's is true. Which is uh, always fun, especially in a week going into Thanksgiving. Stuff yourself with some food and just plop down on a couch. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it's time. It's time. You guys ready to get in versus mode? I'm going to put on my dancing shoes. Some dancing <laughs> I'm going to put on a butt pad because I feel like we're going to be here for a minute. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be here for a hot minute. So I'm going to get my donut. You guys said you like the long form stuff. Get ready because we're about to give it to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's main event. All right, here we go. This was probably our most fan requested film uh, the original Suspiria was, at least. We just thought we'd throw in the comparison to the 2018 one because we just saw it and we thought it'd be fun. So, uh, Do we have a first person that requested it, though? Do we have a first? No, this was actually like an amalgam of like several different people that requested them. I did not write down the full list. Okay. We've well, those... You guys know who you are. Shouts out to you. Yeah. He wrote 15 pages of notes, but he did not write down. I did down not write down most of people. <laughs> you can't write down everything, Sam. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever actually written down my sources for the yes, stuff Yes, I, I thought it was up. absolutely necessary. And yeah. I've got a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, so do I. I uh, like scroll and scroll and scroll to find them. <laughs> so why don't we start off the way we usually do, uh, talk about the, the cast and and. I guess the the crew behind the film first. Uh, let's start off with the original one, the Spiria from 1977. Uh, of course, this is directed by Dario Argento. It was written by Dario Argento and uh, his girlfriend Daria Nicolotti. Uh, the soundtrack is done by Goblin, as everybody already knows. It stars Jessica Harper as Susie Banyan with a Z Y. Suzzy, Suzzy, Suzzy Banyan, and the occult. Yeah, and the occult. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I was going to mention something about that too eventually. Uh, Stefania Cassini as Sarah, uh, Flavio Bucci as Daniel, Miguel Bose, 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 I think. Bose, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark as Mark, Barbara Magnol- Magnolfi uh, as Olga, Susanna Jaffa Coley as Sonia, Exa, Eva, Eva, sorry, Eva Exen as Pat Hengel. Uh, Rudolf Schunder as Professor Milius, and Udo Kier as. Dr. Frank Mandel, uh, Alita Valli as Miss Tanner, Joan Bennett as Madame Blanc, uh, who's a very, very famous actress. Yes. Very famous actress. Uh, Margarita Horowitz as the teacher, and Jacopo uh, Mariani as Albert. Oh, poor Albert. With his Not going to lie. Names. One of my favorite parts of all of our episodes is Palmer working his way through the cast. <laughs> <list>. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when it's a, a foreign <laughs> yeah, film. Names, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Suspiria 2018 is directed by Luca Guadagnino. It's written by uh, David Kajganich. Uh, Dakota Johnson is Susie Banyan with an S-I-E. Yes, with an I-E this time. <laughs> it's different, okay? Yeah, it's, it's totally Midwest different. Susie versus East Coast Suzy. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Tilda Swinton with her with her plethora of characters here. She's Madame Blanc, Dr. Josef Klemperer, and Helena Marcos. Uh, we have Doris Hick as Frau Sesame. Uh, Margolotza, sorry, Malgorzata, Malgorzata, Bella, as Susie's mother. Um, Chloe Grace Moretz as Patricia. Angela Winkler as uh, Miss Tanner. Vanda Capriolo as Alberta. Alec Weck as Miss Milius. Jessica Batut as Miss Mandel. Elena Fokina as Olga. And Mia Goth as Sarah. Um, I think collectively before we start... And maybe we'll have some of the same sources. I'm not sure. But I want to read mine off because they're numerous. Uh, I genuinely felt at times that I was 
preparing a fucking thesis yeah. for, this, <laughs> for this podcast. But in the end, all this research I did really helped me appreciate both the original and the remake actually a lot more. Um, so uh, I read it came from an, an essay called Suspiria by uh, Derek Botello. Uh, I did, got Terror and Technicolor by uh, David E. Williams, which I found in America's Cinematographer magazine. Um, the Harvard Classics English essays, Dario Argento film and music interviews by Bizarre magazine, and several Synapse uh, film documentaries, including inter- interviews with Barbara Magnolfi, uh, Dario Argento, and Jessica Harper. Uh, for the 2018 version, almost all my information was gathered from interviews with Dakota Johnson, Luca Guadagnino, Tilda Swinton, and members of the production team. I also would like to credit YouTube content creators, Men vs. Movies, and Screen Prisms, uh, who I would definitely be including links to their uh, YouTube channels in the podcast subscription our description so you guys can go subscribe and check out their their content because it's actually pretty fantastic um what about you guys i know you guys have a, a ton yeah um i don't have all the article names but i've got the the names of the writers and where they were from and i can always dig up the article names as needed uh, i've got lewis knight from the mirror um uh, i've got an interview tom york did with npr i've got a couple of interviews that luca guadagnino did one with a hollywood reporter uh one with new york times and one with the playlist uh, I've got an article from Julie Bloom of the New York Times titled Suspiria Then and Now Finding Darkness in an All-Female World. Uh, and then three other articles, one from Angela Watercutter via Wired, one from Britt Hayes via Screen Crush, and one from uh, a regular contributor who goes by the name Film Crit Hulk for The Observer. Oh, yeah, I read that. Okay, what about you, Alex? Uh, the two, I, and there's a ton, and I, I apologize, I didn't write them all down, but the two main ones I got articles from was an article by Dale M. Kushner on Psychology Today called Mothers, Witches, and the Power of Archetypes. Oh, okay. And then also on an article by Britt Hayes called Psychoanalyzing Luca Guadagnino's Rapturous Rebirth of a Horror Classic. Yes, that's okay. the same one. That's the Britt Hayes one I had also. Okay, yeah, that was amazing. Okay, perfect. Uh, let's jump into a little bit about the origins for both of these films before we start settling into our, our deep analysis here. Uh, <laughs> after, after directing a series of very successful Gialli, uh, Deep Red, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Cat of Nine Tails, and Four Flies on Grey Velvet, uh, Dario Argento set out to create something more rooted in the supernatural, combining elements of murder mystery with witchcraft and covens to create one of the most celebrated horror films of all time. The original Suspiria was a project a long time in the making. It began with when Argento read the mythology of the three mothers in Thomas de Quincey's Suspiria, Suspiria de Profundis, which loosely translates to Sigh from the Deaths, uh, but found itself cemented once he read the German playwright Frank Wedekind's uh, On the Bodily Education of Young Girls. Uh, while De Quincey's Suspiria de Profundis is more well-known to Giallo fanatics, the latter novella tells the story of young girls being raised in a boarding school and the perversion of their innocence by those that they trust most. Argento wanted to combine the picture, this picture of innocence and attempt to portray its corruption in a way more rooted, rooted in occultism, but it wasn't until longtime girlfriend Daria Nicolotti, uh, her grandmother mentioned a story about a school that she went to to study piano. There was darkness lying under the surface of the academy, though, and Nicoletti's grandmother went so far as to assert that the academy actually taught black magic. Um, it was this final piece that managed to stitch together the bigger picture, creating the framework for Susie Banyan and her experiences in the Coven of Witches. Fast forward 31 years to 2008. The public was first made aware of a remake of Suspiria when MTV broke the news after Luca Guadagnino had acquired the option from the original film's writers, Dario Argento and Daria Nicolotti. Uh, 
the project was initially offered to director David Gordon Green, who recently directed the Halloween remake, um, and it was set to star Natalie Portman. As Susie. Yeah, uh, which I thought was really interesting. It would have been a very different movie. What I also find really funny about that whole thing you just said was that MTV broke the story. Yeah, yeah. it was MTV that broke the story. In between 16 and pregnant. (laughs) The people are like, what the fuck is Suspiria? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But it was canceled due to budget issues, uh, including mishandling of funds. and legal missteps and a backlash uh, from the original film's fan base, as well as our as Dario Argento himself. Uh, the film made a resurgence in September of 2015 when Guadagnino confirmed his plans to direct what he called an homage to the original film, not a remake, at the 72nd Venice Film Festival. Pairing himself with writer David Kajganich. Fun fact, actually, Kajganich had worked with Gordon Green on a different film called A Bigger Splash. Yes. Yeah, so they're all kind of tied into each other here. Yeah, yeah, she was. Um, the two poured over details and redirected plot points uh, with ideas that Guadagnino himself had been stewing on for almost a decade. So, so he's been thinking about it. He, he had he had a <laughs> lot of time to think about this stuff. It seems like it. And there was actually it's actually interesting because you know like um, when they first announced the trailer, and we talked about it in depth, right? Uh, when it's mentioned about the three mothers. Mm-hmm. I said that there could be a trilogy for this, that maybe they're trying to mine this, this mythology a lot more. And actually in the, in the Wikipedia for the, for the latest film, that's exactly what Guadagnino is talking about doing. Really? Yeah. He's, he's very interested in, in doing a history of the dance Academy and Helena Marcos herself. Oh, yeah. So he's, he's got a lot of stuff kind of planned. He, uh, in an interview he did with the playlist, uh, he said he's got backstories written for almost all of the characters. Yep. Um, and quote, I have this image in my mind of Helena Marcos in solitude in the year 1212 in Scotland or in Spain, wandering through a village and trying to find out how she can manip- manipulate the women of the village. I have this image. I know she was there. I know it was six to 700 years before the actual storyline of the film. Um, and this one, uh, this Suspiria was actually, uh, the working title was Suspiria part one. Yeah. Um, and again, Guadagnino says that uh, this, this is because this is a movie uh, with layers and times and space, and that when Patricia is in that undead situation, she says to Sarah, "Show me the." Th- uh, sh- she shows me things. Uh, I'd like to investigate what kind of things. Where is she? What is she saying? It's very fertile. What uh, the screenwriter David, uh, how are you saying? came up with. So I think depending on how the movie plays out in theaters, we may revisit it once to see. I think this movie particularly is in a way not necessarily something that needs to be progressed in advance. A companion piece this uh, that could be something that better deals with different layers of time, not just the arrow that points to the future. Yeah. So, so okay. <laughs> he could tap into all sorts. Of, I mean, honestly, this is just based on the mythology itself, mm-hmm. which I did read a little bit of. Yeah. Um, I basically found like a spark notes on the original book. Right. Uh, and, and kind of plowed through that. And there's, I mean, that's, it's, it's a gold mine of stuff that you could really tap into if you really wanted to. And I think you could do a lot more with it than Argento did with his trilogy. Um, especially since the, his trilogy only really loosely ties into one another. It doesn't actually, um, aside from like a handful of things in each film, right. but the, the, you know, if, if you really wanted to, you could probably turn this into something massive. I mean, he's had 10 years to th- dwell on this one. I'm pretty sure he's got an entire, like, Marvel-sized universe 
ready to go. I am sure yeah. that he has sat and thought about this ad not like just obsessively. It's yeah. just it's just one of those things like he strikes me as a different type of director, you know, like not necessarily somebody like I don't expect him to James Wan this, you know, to turn no. this into like a conjuring franchise. I'd imagine that he would get bored with something like that. Like I could see him mining other directors to kind of take the place and see what they can pull out of it and be like, "Hey, here are my ideas." But I don't know that I really see him himself doing a, a whole series of yeah. these films. I feel like, it, it, at least not immediately, I could see him doing something else and then coming back to it. And right. Doing something else and maybe coming Cause back to it. Because he does do, I mean, what was the one that he's also super, it won the Call Academy Award. Call yeah. about, like, he did, it's a completely different type of movie. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's it's full of vibrant colors. It's like, it's... It's a love it, story. It's, it's a love story. <laughs> it's nothing at all like this movie no. whatsoever. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting. Well, I, I think, I think, one of the most enticing things about the remake will be seeing what comes of it, especially given both the critical and and the. I mean, like I said, it's polarizing, but the fan response I think has been more positive than it has been negative. Um, I think even if people aren't a hundred percent on board with the movie in itself, I think that they are not displeased with him redoing it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's not like the Rob Zombie. Re- remake of halloween where people were like this is absolute fucking right how dare you do this like you did a fucking terrible job and i think that they're like he gave it his all people not might not always you know enjoy the way that he did it but Mm -hmm. they're not upset that he tried yeah i think personally for me the mistakes that i noticed i don't necessarily think that they're mistakes i think it was just a level of ambition like maybe it was too ambitious in certain mm. ways, but we'll we'll get into we'll that. We'll get into a that. Bit. Yeah, we'll get into that a little <laughs> bit more here. Um, this is polarizing within us. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It really is. Uh, so let's talk uh, a bit about, I guess, some of the thematic elements before we start jumping into the characters and all that kind of stuff. Uh, although we can probably segue from thematic elements into characters. Yeah. I feel like they're very um, much we'll, intertwined we'll with jump each around. other. Yeah, we'll absolutely. Jump around. Sam, um, why, don't, why don't you take lead on this? I know you had a lot of stuff about uh, uh, the era that this movie takes place in. The, yeah. The, the, I guess during the, the rebuilding of Berlin and the Civil War that was going on with all that. Uh, yeah, and just kind of remakes the, in general first, or, though. Mm-hmm. Um. One of the, I think it was uh, the article from Wired, made a really interesting point. Um, most people, when a remake is done or a reboot is done, they always go back and watch the original mm-hmm. um, for like a frame of reference. Um, I haven't seen this movie in a very long time. The original? So, yeah. Okay. Um, so I watched it for the first time in probably a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the night before we went and saw it. Oh, wow. Yeah, I believe that you, you um, said that you had just watched it. When yeah. You watched it. Um, so it's nice to be able to, like, pinpoint and appreciate, you know, elements that get drawn out of the original. Right. Um, but the, the argument in this article was don't do that. Don't pull it, from the original. No, no. If you haven't seen the original movie or if it's been a very long time since you've seen it, don't watch it before seeing this one. Do they recommend watching it afterwards? Yes. Okay. Um, so instead of going – instead of prepping yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that speaks to how radically different this movie is in comparison to Argento's. Um, and I viewed this, especially after like reading more about, uh, Luca Guadagnino's history as this was his love letter to Dario Argento. Mm -hmm. Like he grew up idolizing both Argento and the original Suspiria. Um, so I mean, this is something that he's wanted to do since he was a kid. Um, and there's also the argument with remakes, you know, as you talked about with Rob Zombie, you're, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't like, 
we we've talked about it before where if you do like a, a shot for shot remake what's the point yeah um, yeah no absolutely I mean, which i feel like green would have done should he have done the new suspiria yeah and because i feel like he kind of did that with halloween it was yeah there was a lot there of, was a lot of callback to the original it was yeah. very much a you know a fan appreciation movie for people who like that movie, but right. it was pretty much the same thing. So like, if you go that route, you, you know, that's one argument. If you go the completely opposite direction where, right. you know, you use the source material as inspiration, but that's about it. Would you say it's a rebirth of the movie? I would. I would. Um, I wonder why we would say that. Um, but interestingly, uh, Luca Guadagnino is close friends with Dario Argento. Uh, and uh, he said that, uh, Prior to this movie starting, but after he had gotten the rights, they sat down and had dinner, and Argento said, you don't need any blessing. You just need to go out and do your movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that Argento has seen the movie, but it, uh, he's not going to say what Dario told him, right. um, only that he got a phone call from him afterwards and said that it was a great phone call. Right, which is good because I feel like back in 2015 or something like that, he said that it shouldn't be remade. Yeah. So... Well, yeah, like I said, there was there was actually he he. Uh, it was an interesting situation, right? Because the rights were up for sale, mm-hmm. but he was adamantly against it initially, um, against a remake of it when it was first announced, um, to the point where he like has public statements of him basically being like, "Why? Like, why? Why? Are you doing, why, why, yeah. why are you doing Because <laughs> yeah. um, he, yeah, I mean, he, I think he ranks this amongst his best films. I'm like, sure himself. So. It's just one of those like, all right, well, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> but I think I think. But for them to him to go around and then say that afterwards yeah. is yeah. high praise. Assuming it's good, yeah, yeah. Assuming it was high praise. I mean, I mean, he called them and said, "What was said the quote something. exactly?" He said something. Uh, he yeah. said that uh, he won't say what it was. Lucas but... says, "I can only say to you that after he saw it, or after Dario saw it, he called me, and it was a great phone call." That's great. So I assume it was a nice thing to say. Um, but I mean, Carpenter gave Rob Zombie his blessings, and then all of a sudden those two fell apart. So I don't know what the fuck to think in terms of, of directors calling. Directors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, directors. But there's a ton of obvious things that were pulled from the original movie. Um, apparently, Germany's just very rainy. Yes. Um, <laughs> it is still set in Germany, although the city changes. And yeah, we'll, we'll talk versus, about that in a bit. Versus uh, Freiburg. Yeah. Um, when things get violent, there is a lot of red. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one sequence that really stood out to me um, that in Dario's version, uh, Susie explicitly says out loud that if you count the steps from the room, you can tell where they are. Um, they don't say it explicitly in Luca's version, but that sequence kind of does happen as she works her way towards the mirror room. Um, and of course, the big final confrontation with Mother Suspiria. Um, there are a ton of changes, and we're going to get into all of those, um, primarily around who is Mother Suspiria. Uh, Susie's kind of role and character itself um, and kind of how witchcraft and female mm-hmm. empowerment play into this movie. Um, yeah, there are huge differences between the way witchcraft is handled in the remake versus the original and how women with witchcraft is handled between the two as well. Yeah. Right? Um, I also think in the new movie, there's multi. There, I don't think there. A lot of people are saying there's a ton of different stories going on at the same time. Um, the question of which story is the most important in this movie compared to the stories in the original, 
I think is a big deal. I think the original is a lot more focused. Yes. It's uh it's it's a lot more streamlined. It's very clear-cut good versus evil. Um the differences in the representation of what is good and what isn't. Yeah. I guess in the original versus mm-hmm. versus the remake. Uh Good and Evil has a very gray area in the remake, whereas it's very black and white in the original. You mm-hmm. know, like uh, it's it's it, if you're a witch, you're bad. There's that's it. Like that's yeah. the bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as we mentioned, uh, movie was or the setting was changed from Freiburg, Germany, to Berlin. It's set in 1977, which is thirty a little over thirty years after the end of World War II. Uh, Berlin Wall is still more than a decade away from being mm-hmm. torn down, um, and it plays a I wouldn't say a prominent role, but it's very clearly there in the backdrop of the movie. Um, in many of the shots, you see it. Um, and it's used as a conversation starter. Well, I feel like it represents so much, too, in this movie. Yeah. Old versus new. Mm-hmm. You know, the struggle to kind of conform to what you should be doing and, and people wanting to be do different things, which is present, obviously, in 1977 Berlin, but also in the dance academy. Yeah. You have old... Versus new, you have, you know, is it Mother Blanc? Uh, Madame Blanc. Blanc. <laughs> I was like, Mother Blanc. You have Madame Blanc and then, you know, Marcos. And if like, she, one is old, one is new. I don't know. I feel like it, I feel like the Berlin Wall represents a ton. Yeah. Um, in the new one, there's also a ton of background information kind of uh, about what's going on in Germany outside mm-hmm. of the halls of the Dance Academy. Um, there's constant mention of uh, the Nazi era, Theresienstadt concentration camp. And the Bader-Meinhof gang, also known as the Red Army Faction. Um, a lot of it's picked up via TV and radio mm-hmm. um, that's kind of going on in the background. Um, and there is conversation about uh, German Autumn, which uh, was a national crisis that uh, also tied to the RAF being responsible for 34 deaths um, and bombings. Because uh, that's when like the young and like disfranch- like dis enfranchised people were kind of fighting against lingering Nazism in Germany. Yeah, so there was a lot of uh, anti-fascist uprising, which is mentioned in this movie. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz's character is uh-huh. thought to have gone missing to join right. up with some That's uh, also when David Bowie movie. went to go sing by the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Heroes, specifically. <laughs> Dropping the David Bowie facts. <laughs> always. Always with the David Bowie facts. Um, and then there's conversations about the hijacking of the Lufthansa uh, plane, um, that show up in these broadcasts. Oh, yeah, there are. Yeah, um, so that's something I totally just completely fucking forgot about so up the, until you just mentioned it. There's, there's a lot of this stuff kind of going on in the background. Um, and the original uh, Suspiria doesn't really tackle a lot of political stuff. No, although that also takes place in 1977. Yeah, same time frame. Um, and as you mentioned, Palmer, you know, it, very black and white with the original. Witches are bad. In the new one, that's not so much. Because um, in Argento's film, Susie's Not a Witch... Um, and all witches in the film are unlikable evil, mm-hmm. which is the very clear distinction that Argento made. Well, it's not just that. I mean, it's it's uh, in the original film, witches are not capable of good. Yeah. Their their magic yeah. their magic is literally only meant to destroy life. Um, and this is all taken from from uh, uh, Udo Kier's friend. What's his name? Uh, I can't remember the doctor's name off the top of my head. But there's a point where they're talking, and it's one of the only scenes that's shot on location, not oh, on yeah. a set. Um, 
when she goes to meet Udo, when Susie goes to meet Udo Kier's character, and she introduces him, Frank he, Mandel, yes, uh, introduces Mandel. Uh, Professor Mandel, yeah, and uh, he he sits down with her and he says literally like point blank that that witches are not capable of, of good, right? Yeah. And so in this world, in this in this in in Argento's version of of witchcraft, the only way that they can conduct magic is to destroy life, mm-hmm. which which most actual people that practice witchcraft or, or magic with a K in real life, like they can tell you it's meant for good. It's right. not something that's necessarily meant to destroy, although it has capable or it's capable of doing both. So it's just interesting uh, how clear cut it is in the original film versus versus the remake. Everything's so gray. Yeah. And Guadagnino even said that um, kind of tying this in, tying this, idea of you know 70s era berlin and all the Mm -hmm. political unrest going on at that time um along with the the rise of european feminism at that point um ties a lot into kind of what's going on today uh with both with like times up and me too movement and the Mm -hmm. view of witches in general um and he said it's a great unconscious resonance um regarding the exploration of women and motherhood in suspiria we always felt that we wanted to go in a direction where you could see empowerment and the relationship of power between women, and that is falling in a place and time in which the debate about power and women is so important to our mm-hmm. present. Um, so it, it it very much is intentionally a, a gray area in this film, because um, in this one, Susie S.I.E. is absolutely a witch, as well as a ton of people at the Academy. Yeah, they're all very involved, whereas in the original film, there's a lot of people that are out of the loop. Right. And that's shown uh, yeah. to us very early in the movie. There's yeah, right. no guessing, which I feel like you couldn't hide it if anyone knows this movie, but they come right out in the front. Like you see them. A really great scene is where they're speaking telekinetically, making that vote. Mm-hmm. And for the first little while when I was watching it, I thought that they were just kind of dubbing over their... Because they do that at dinner yeah, a but, couple of times too, Yeah, right? but the first time they did it was when they were all voting for either Marcos or Blanc. Yeah. And I thought that they were just kind of showing them doing their daily thing and playing their conversation from another time in the background. That's what I thought. But then someone actually like turns around and like laughs at a funny point. And I was like, oh, no, they're actually like speaking to each other telekinetically. Yeah. Like, That's a nice little touch. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of conversations that go on without any words at all. Yeah, I actually, that's one of my criticisms of the film, is I found all those scenes to be very fucking confusing. They were uh, hard to follow. Yeah, they're very hard to follow, especially when they're carrying such distinct plot points. Um, And a lot of the background, a lot of the um, uh, adjacent plot points, I guess, are all included in those passing conversations. Mm -hmm. And they're all short scenes. They're not more than a few minutes at a time. Uh, And I actually just found that to be just a super confusing presentation of that oh see like, i loved I, it I, I think i personally thought that could have been done a lot better but that i i see what he was going for there yeah um that's just one of my where i'm gonna open with a criticism right <laughs> i didn't realize it and i didn't realize for that first scene when they were voting on who they wanted you know to be kind of head of the house until that very kind of sad looking witch with the glasses when yeah. she had to make her vote mm-hmm. and she just kind of like you could see her mouth wasn't moving and she just kind of like slumped her shoulders down and like looked at her cereal and i was like oh yeah i was like oh, okay because before that for like the first like 30 seconds i had no idea what was going right. on but i mean like with you and maybe that's like you enjoyed those scenes but yeah even you found it confusing for the first little bit but then once yeah. i realized that they could do that i wasn't confused for the rest of the movie okay okay 
I don't think I realized that until just now. So that clears up a lot of that for me. <laughs> like, I was incredibly confused in the multi- multiple scenes where that happens. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. They communicate a lot in that movie. And I think part of the reason why I and was And, like, so through walls like, and stuff like that. Yeah, like, that they, they don't have to be in the same room. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't until they started doing that through that I put the, the pieces together. Yeah. And realized that's what was going on. Because I, like you, thought that there was... I wasn't sure what the hell they were doing. <laughs> I thought they were having, like, a conversation that was taking place at a different time... And that it was just being played over them. Yeah. Having breakfast or whatever. Yeah. Kind of yeah. what I'd thought. Um, and I think part of the reason why I was so confused by it is the the number of instructors in this one compared to yes. uh, uh, Argento's. There's a lot more. There were. It was and a- most of them are irrelevant. Like, no. you, it doesn't matter who they are. But it was a whole academy full of teachers. Yeah. As opposed to, like, three. And so you hear all these different voices from all these different actresses. And it, it, nobody's actually moving their mouths. No. Um, and the camera's not really focusing on anybody in particular. No, as it's very far out, so you can only see them very small. Um, so I, I found it very hard to follow. I liked that's one of the. I actually really enjoyed that because I feel like that was one of the many scenes that in this movie shows so much more about what the coven does. Yeah. Then, whereas the original kind of, they're like they're witches. This is what they do, but you don't get to see any of the inner workings of what witches who run a dance academy actually do. You do. You get glimpses of it, but it's not until the end of the film. Yeah. Uh, like you get a little bit of an instance of it when the two cooks are are talking to each other as Susie's trying to sneak past them. Yeah. You get uh, the when Susie goes into the room when she's hiding in the corner, right? And it's Albert and uh, um, Blanc and. Mm-hmm. I can't remember who else is in there. Uh, it's Blanc and like two other instructors. Okay. And they're talking about what needs to happen with Susie. With Susie. Why she needs to be killed. Right. Uh, and but they're so speaking kind of, to each other. Yeah, they're speaking to each yeah. other. Yeah. Um, I guess I meant so more like gives, the mystical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't see a lot of the mysticism. The, one of the best parts where you do see a, uh, the mysticism is actually when uh, they kill um, Albert, the piano player. Oh, yeah. Um, what's his name? What's his name? Oh man, I can't remember it off the top of my head. But his the blind is, piano, yeah, the teacher. B- blind piano. Because of his dog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was also like the only. He was the only person that didn't die from a killer, right? It wasn't right. like a slasher type death. No. It was very mystical because he's walking down that near that Capitol building, and mm-hmm. and you see the statue of of like the eagle or the hawk or whatever on the building, and it cuts to it and shows it to you, and then it cuts to the dog. The camera cuts to the dog, and then it cuts back to the to the building, and that statue's gone. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the camera swoops in, mm-hmm. and something happens. Like, it, it, it goes right next to the dog, and you're not sure exactly what takes place, but something... That's probably one of the most magical moments of the film, and it's... It happens when a guy dies, yeah. Yeah. which I found to be very interesting. And then his dog eats him. <laughs> yeah, and then his dog eats him. So his dog gets possessed in one way, or shape, or form. Right. And they're building up to it, right? They give you that plot point because it attacks the child, or they say they it say it attacks the child, the child. yeah, uh, beforehand. And maybe they manipulated the dog into attacking the child. I'm sure. And and um, why did so, they want him gone so bad? I don't remember. I think it was because he, like, they did. I. I'm under the impression that it's because he was, he was like, he was the only guy instructor there, right? Like, yeah. he, he wasn't even really an instructor. He wasn't an instructor. He just played piano. I remember them, yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like they just were fine with him. And then one day they came in, they're like, oh, your dog's a dick. Yeah. But I'm just, I don't, I don't remember because it's, 
I've not just watched this like two weeks ago. I don't remember why they were angry with him. I've I've watched this movie three times in the last ten days. I still don't understand why or what the catalyst was for that. Okay. I think it just. I think he's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be one of those like, all right, you've lost your senses or you've lost one of your senses, so the others are heightened. Right. And maybe they were afraid because of everything that was going on and the fact that they had had to they were forced mm-hmm. to kill one student. And that maybe second, he would. <laughs> that maybe he would start catching on to what was going on. Right. Because he um, said he could hear everything, right? Yeah, yeah. And He's well, like, even though I can't see, like, I can hear, I hear everything. everything. Yeah. So I think he had some sort of idea of what was taking place, or at least was starting to, maybe they were afraid that he was starting to get some sort of idea of what was taking place. <laughs> One thing that is interesting is that there was a entire dance sequence that took place with Olga. Yeah. That was cut from the film. And it was supposed to be a pretty intimate moment between her and the piano player. And I'm wondering if that scene might have added a little bit more to the context Mm. of why they got rid of him. Maybe. But that doesn't exist anymore. Speaking of deleted scenes in the new one, apparently there was supposed to be a whole scene where they went to go see David Bowie. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, and one of the dancers... at the wall? Yeah, and one of the dancers in the film was supposed to also be playing David Bowie. Okay. I just assumed it would be Tilda Swinton. No. <laughs> <laughs> I could see her being David Bowie. <laughs> I, I don't, I didn't, when I, I, when they, when I read whose name it was, I didn't write it down. I feel silly because I could have, I imagine there was like in the movie, not the movie poster, but for the kind of the, the screenshot that they show for all of their reviews, it's kind of the, the lady who was really good at jumping. Yeah. I feel oh. like she could. I feel like she could have been a good David Bowie. Yeah, I bet. I bet you it was her. Maybe. <laughs> I, in my head, I'm seeing Tilda Swinton when she was in Constantine with the okay. the, 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 the cropped blonde hair. Daniel was his name. Daniel. Oh, Daniel, Daniel was the, the piano, piano player. player. Okay. Yep. I feel like there's a bajillion people in this movie. <laughs> they're, they're, it's hard to to remember the cast list for just one of these films right. let alone both of them at the same time <laughs> I think in the future now when we're for the rest of the podcast when I'm talking about instead of calling it old Suspiria and new Suspiria I'm going to call it OG Suspiria <laughs> <laughs> so I want do you guys know the, the background behind Tilda Swinton playing all these different characters yeah I do I, do, it, do you know about this me. one? It's enlighten me. Fa- it's fascinating. It's, it's insane is really what it is so before we go into this can I just say one quote yeah so um there was an interview with the screenwriter. How do we say his name again, you guys? Kasevich. Uh, K- Kad, Kad, Kajkovich. How are you saying it? Kajkovich. Kajkovich. So he said that Luca. Kajkinich, yes. Kajkinich. Kajkinich. I feel like my screen is underlining it too, so I can't read it. Uh, Luca and I had more conversations about Jungian and Freudism theory than we actually did about horror movies. And I feel like that explains a shit ton about this movie. Which it does. And that's that actually ties into this. Yeah. Um, so, Luca told the New York Times that he deliberately cast Tilda Swinton as uh, Madame Blanc, Dr. Klemperer, and the third, at the time, unannounced role, which is Mother Suspiria Arm, um, for thematic reasons, saying that the movie oh, is... Oh, no, she's just Helena Marcos. Or, sorry, nice. yeah, uh, Helena Marcos. Um, that the movie is very connected to psychoanalysis, and I like to think that only Tilda could play the ego, the superego, and the id. Um, and as for why uh, Swinton was cast as the only male role... Uh, the screenwriter said to Vanity Fair that uh, both Luca and I were adamant that the male gaze never intrude. Uh, there will always be an element of femininity at the core of this film. Uh, being a film about the fantastic, it was important that we did not play by the book. Right. Tilda Swinton dove into this shit head first. Right, because the the idea of the id, the ego, and the super ego is a, is a Freudian thing. Yeah. The id being um, 
which Marcos would represent is like the source of our bodily needs, wants and desires. So kind of like, I don't give a shit. I'm doing what I want to do. Kind of like, she doesn't care how, you know, if she's killing these women, she doesn't care if it's not working, but she wants this body and this is what she's going to do. The ego represents something that could be called like reason and or common sense, which would be Madame Blanc. And then Klemper represents a super ego, which is really fun. It's like the vehicle of tradition and all of the values that kind of as a community, people propagate themselves mm-hmm. from generation to generation so he kind of you know he's like the yeah. old the old wise man um but tillis went was 100 percent on board with this idea to the point where originally uh and i i didn't pay attention to the credits when we saw it so i don't know how it was credited um i think it was credited as lutz ebersdorf it was um they referred to his character her character as him as like yeah, yeah. as Lutz, they were so to get meta with it. They and, did. So <laughs> and this is how meta they got. Tilda Swinton wrote an elaborate biography for him on IMDb, detailing how his family fled from the Nazis when he was a child, extolling his education, studying uh, Kleinian psychoanalysis, and providing an excuse for why he's never been heard of in show business before. Um, at 82 years old, he was supposedly part of a radical performance ensemble, heavily influenced by the Vienna Actionists and, in particular, the work of Hermann Nietzsche. Um, but all of their films from the fifties and sixties were lost. Um, but unfortunately now his biography redirects to her page. Right. And there, I, it was with an interview with Lucas said that that will probably be his last movie because he is very old. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it took four hours every day for her to become Lutz Ebersdorf playing, um, that's actually not too bad considering how many prosthetics they had to put on her. I feel like including Jack- a giant penis and balls. Yeah, there was a penis and balls. It was a according to uh, see that, yeah. the head. You can't see that. <laughs> according to the head makeup artist and Oscar winner Mark Coulier, uh, she had a nice weighty set of genitalia so that she could feel it dangling between her legs and managed to pull it out on set a couple times. So what do we think? I feel like this is one thing that a lot of people have been saying about the makeup. We talked about this. We after talked we about this right movie. afterwards. I will be f- the first one to admit that I did not realize. I didn't. I guess we had talked about it, but I forgot that Tilda Swinton was playing that character. Um, there were parts where I was like, "That's a really weird looking dude," and it wasn't until the end that I realized it was not a dude. That the only time where it was a dead giveaway was naked Lutz Ebersdorf. Yeah. What do you think, Palmer, about that? I really liked. I really liked. Uh, Joseph Klemper. Uh huh. I think they did a very good job there. What ripped me out of it 100% was Helena Marcos. Really? I thought. Like makeup pros- wise or character wise? Makeup. Makeup wise. Okay. Uh, I thought well, it, it, this is. It had nothing to do with Tilda Swinton's acting. I think she knocked it out of the park in all three roles. And I can't imagine how hard it must have been to be oh, shooting <laughs> three different people in three different sets of makeup. For the for the end scene in the same and very room. intense characters too, like yeah. very very much like the three almost prominent roles of this movie. Right. Well, fortunately, at least for Doctor Klemperer's part, all he had to do was lay there. But uh, yeah, he, yeah, but it's still very and looks very scene. upset. It's a very, yeah. it's a very <laughs> well, it's a very intense scene. It's one of the it's it's well, when we talk about the role of men in yeah. in both of these films. I mean, I have a lot of stuff to say about the way that that things happened in the remake. Uh, yeah. But but yeah no that's actually one of my my biggest criticisms of this movie is her as Helena Marcos um, and it's not because of her performance it's because of the makeup mm. um, and and here's why uh, I really thought that that suit 
looked fake. It was incredibly obvious how how fake it looked. And the thing that I can compare it to the most was Tusk. Uh, it reminded me of Justin Long's walrus suit in Tusk. Mm-hmm. And Tusk, I can forgive because that was a $3 million budget <laughs> film. Uh, the, and the whole thing is meant to right, be a joke. Right, it's meant to be a joke. Uh, Suspiria had $20 million budget. And it's not supposed to be a joke. <laughs> and it's very serious, thought-provoking, heart as, or horror as art cinema piece. I just find it absolutely inexcusable that that's what you roll out for Helena Marcos when you've got Joseph Klemperer looking as good as mm-hmm. as he does throughout the entirety of that film. Yep. Because I went through this knowing that it was her playing that character. Right. And there were a couple times where I was like, you know, I can tell that it's Tilda. But like... If I went into that movie, and I think it was solely because I went into that movie knowing it was her. Right. If I went into that film not knowing it was her, there is no way in hell yeah. I would have known that that was her. For but Klemperer he- or Marcos? For Klemperer. For, Mar- for Helena Marcos, it was so obvious. Mm. It was so obvious. I didn't know that she played Helena Marcos. I actually didn't know that. And I was like, that's Tilda Swinton. Mm-hmm. Immediately. I, as so, soon as it happened, I was like, that. so she's playing three characters in this fucking movie. I didn't, right. I didn't know that she was playing Klemperer when I went in to see it. How did you guys not know? We talked about I this. I know, but I forgot. <laughs> I, I forgot. <laughs> I feel but, like so, and as soon as you said that, you're like, we talked about it. I'm like, I'm sure we did, but I just forgot. Yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> My brain has a lot of information in it. <laughs> I, like, I had forgotten about it, but about halfway through the movie, there's, there's the sequence where uh, Klemper sees, uh, or thinks he sees his wife. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There, there's a, a a facial expression or something. There, the the reaction that Klemperer's character has is the exact same face that Tilda Swinton made earlier in the movie, like and like the physical mannerisms. Uh huh. And I was like, oh, okay, there it is. There it is. Yeah. You know who the who Tilda Swinton is as Marcos kind of reminded me of. There's one because I feel like we were just talking about Hellraiser. There's that one Cenobite that has like the glasses and like the big fat beige looking one. That's right, right, kind right. of what it reminded <laughs> me of. But that one part where the he she like stuck her finger in her vagina. Yeah. <laughs> it was very unnerving. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> and like and like I said, I really I can't commend her acting prowess enough. No. Uh, and it's really got I've nothing to do with great. her. Yeah, I, mean, she really I, I is. haven't seen her in anything bad. Honestly, she's she's very quickly becoming one of my favorite actresses in all of Hollywood. Absolutely. To be, to be completely honest. Although I believe that she isn't gender binary, so maybe saying actress isn't the right No, I think right. that she refers to herself as an actress. Oh, does she? Okay. Because um, when she won the Academy Award, it was for Best Actress. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, that might actually have to do more with the Academy Award. Right. And not but what I she feel like she would have, to herself as. But she might have said, like... Um, but the she's she's very talented and it's it's obvious in this film and i mean i don't think there's too many people on the face of this earth that could pull off doing those three roles in one movie and make yeah. them as believable as they did but man helena marcos like <laughs> that talk about something that could have been it, they could have made it so much better if they would have bothered to enhance that with a little bit of cgi yeah a little bit of CGI is all it would have taken. Just a little bit. And, Which is weird. And they could have made that so much better. We're all usually pretty big fans of all the practical makeup and practical effects. But yeah, well, no, in this but case, I mean, I'm Sometimes CGI I helps. Th- no, I think it's, uh, you know, um, 
when we talked about Terrifier, mm-hmm. that eye gouging scene, yeah, that where I literally paused and I was like, I was talking to you guys about it on the podcast, where I was like, I have no idea how the fuck they did that. That looks so. That's good. right, and they said and, that, and Damien told us it was because they enhanced it with CGI. Yeah. Like that works, yeah, and it, that fucking works. If maybe you use it in the right bit, spots, maybe yeah. a little bit of touching up would have been great on that. And, and and made that a lot more of a believable piece. But yeah, like I said, they rolled her out and, and, and it's that scene in that final scene and then just all I could think of the entire time was fucking Tusk. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> that is... Uh, <laughs> right. So I, I, that's one of my biggest criticisms of the, uh, in this film. It just ripped me right out of it. But I actually think that that whole scene was a culmination of a whole bunch of other things as well. That, I, that whole scene, that, that whole fucking ending scene... One of the reasons I walked out as disappointed as I was was because of the ending of that movie. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Why don't we jump into some character analysis? Yeah, here? yeah. Um, let's talk. Let's 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 talk about Susie Banyan since she's she's the focus of both of these films. Susie and Susie. Yes, Susie and Susie. <laughs> Susie, and Susie. <laughs> Susie versus Susie. In the original film, uh, Susie is is. Who are you going to call her? Susie. <laughs> she's an example of innocence, right? She's this naive American girl that is transplanted planted into a place that she doesn't necessarily understand, and there are all these attempts. Right off the bat, to kind of take advantage of her almost immediately with pressures, mostly related to money. To money, yeah. Uh, Was place, it fifty bucks a week? Yeah, fifty bucks a week. Uh, place upon her is almost as soon as she walks in the door. But it's not just that. I mean, Olga asks her if she wants to buy her shoes instead of. Remember, she tries to yep. borrow yep. them. She wants the to borrow them. Then she's like, "You, you, can, do you want to buy them?" them? No, I have one pair. Just like one day. Damn yeah. greedy bitches! Right, right. Uh, and and Sarah even makes it a point a point of saying that the talk of money is something she's just going to have to get used to. Right, part of life in this academy. That's supposed to be like. Yes, this I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be like a cultural thing or an academy thing? I think it was just an academy thing. Okay. I think. I think. Uh, I don't know enough about Germans in the 1970s. Right. Well, they <laughs> weren't all German. multicultural. But they live in Germany. Right. Right. Um, so, though she's a bit naive, she's also very strong-willed and not easily swayed. She confronts one of the instructors after it's revealed that her room is ready, and she holds fast with her wishes to remain outside of the academy and continue living with Olga. Um but she's also the embodiment of good, and as a result, she is very easily manipulated by the power of evil. The first time that we get to see that is when we get the glinting light of the mirror reflecting in her eyes, mm-hmm. and she's not able to do her first successful dance with the with the troop, um, which is a huge difference between the way Susie is right. is portrayed in the in the remake of the film. Well, her as a dancer in general between the two films, because in Argento's. She comes from a family with a dance background. Right, because right. her aunt and, and she's a very well, established dancer, whereas in this one, it's... She's Mennonite. <laughs> they don't she, dance. She's she's Mennonite, and like her her dance experience, it's almost portrayed as it's limited to her like dancing to... Volk. Well, yeah, yeah, dancing to her watching Volk and just memorizing those moves, but her experience outside of that is never really touched on. It's It's... It's pretty lucky. Oh, she nailed Do you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. In the original, do you actually even see Susie dance? No, you see her faint when you she You see tries her faint. I don't think that you get a chance to see her dance there at all. There was also apparently a dance scene with her that was cut from the film. A lot of the dance sequences were per- apparently cut from the original. Maybe she's film. a bad dancer. No, no. Apparently it had to do with the, the flow of the film. Okay. You just felt that it wasn't, yeah. it didn't add anything to the movie. To the movie about yeah. a dance it is the. It is the one thing about the new one that I do greatly appreciate is there is quite a focus on dancing for it being a dance account. I have to I have to applaud it for that. I mean dance is central is to this film. It's central dance. to the remake. Yeah, and it's it's very it's not just good, it's very powerful. And I'm not a huge fan of modern dance. I really don't appreciate it as much as I do classic dance. Like like right. the, 
Because in the original, if, it's ballet. Yeah, and actually, like, ballet is probably the one thing that I'm impressed by most because of the fact that that ballet dancers put their bodies through 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 hell to get to the point where they can balance on the tip of their toes. Like that's modern that's, dancers also. Put I their mean, bodies. they well, do apparently I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing it. I'm not, but like it's it's like one of those like I just appreciate it as a form of art. Like apparently Dakota Johnson put herself through quite a bit of hell studying yeah. for this movie. Yeah, I mean, um, I, she was of, practicing with the troupe for a whole year yeah. prior to this while filming that last Fifty Shades. I was gonna say, movie. how is she gonna do Fifty Shades? She just, did them at the same time. Jessica Harper did the same thing, though. I yeah. mean, she, she, Jessica Harper and, uh, um, what's her name? Barbara Magnolfi, uh, who played Olga. Mm-hmm. She was pissed when that, that scene, the got, scene got cut, cut out. She's like, I've been fucking she practicing this. <laughs> she was pissed when that scene got cut out. She was very upset about that. I bet. I'd be um, fucking mad, too. Yeah, because she, I mean, they, they, they went through hell trying to get, trying to get those roles together. Um, but, but, anyways, she's, she's easily manipulated by the power of evil. We see it when, um, the spells cast on her at the beginning of the movie, and it hinders her ability to perform. Um, not only offering a poor first impression, but causing her to collapse and bleed from the nose and mouth. Um, she's which quick. is so something I do not think that she's used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she just needs to drink some red wine. She seems like she's killing it normally. Yeah, yeah. And I think it caught her off guard. Like as soon as she knew she she knew she did. Well, because she kept well. saying she's like, I never, I, I never yeah. feel. I don't get sick. I don't feel faint. Yeah. She kept protesting. And 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 the instructors forced her into it mm-hmm. um but uh she's she's twi- it's also a, an excuse to trick her into staying in the academy and I, I have to wonder if she would have just agreed to stay would that have been a completely different situation if she had agreed to not go to yeah if she said she she all right my room's ready all right i'll, tr- I'll grab my bags and come over to the academy and stay here i think they thought that she was too persistent too strong-willed too they strong called willed. her a strong-willed yeah. girl they did and, and they didn't appreciate that um, Those damn strong-willed women. Right. <laughs> um, so they use that as an excuse to trick her into staying in the academy with Olga delivering her bags. And this is actually one of the 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 big hints that we get that Olga is actually probably the only one in the dance troupe who's actually a part of the coven. Yeah. Um, because of how quickly they're dropped off. And actually, she, she Susie makes a comment so far as to say that she thinks Olga is a germaphobe. Yeah, <laughs> because she dropped her bags off so quick. She was like, "Bye." Yeah. <laughs> I don't want what you got. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but her food is then manipulated, uh, and she's kept on a strict diet. It's- she's drinking a lot of that wine, which I feel like a lot of the whatever she's. I think she might be poisoned a little bit too. Perhaps. Well, see, there's there's two theories that I've come across. Okay. One is saying that the food itself was just enchanted, right? And the other one is that she's been drugged. My theory leans more towards the fact that this must be some sort of enchanted. Uh, um, issue because when she pours the wine into the sink, it's syrup. It's not wine, right? Like right. when she's pouring it out, like that wine clings to the entire. Like it was sink. poison. Yeah. So I'm. I, well, I, I'm. Maybe I'm, wine was different forty think, years I think ago. It was supposed to be blood. Oh, it did have the same consistency as blood throughout. It the looks day. like and it, it looks like giallo blood, and it looks like blood because when she tries to clean it up off it's, the sink and it like clings to her yeah, hand, it does look like blood. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, and it, it looks like blood, like it does throughout the movie. Yeah, it's the same bright red color yeah. as all of the other blood that's shown in the film. Oh, okay, exactly. so perhaps she was—they were giving her blood, yeah. enchanted, blood. yeah, some sort of some with a sort spell of on it. Yeah, some sort of spell with this blood, right? Uh, but she's also the film's final girl, in spite of everything that goes on here. She's she 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 doesn't dance much, and the dichotomy, the portrayal of good and evil in this film, like we've touched on a few times already, is very black and white. With her clearly representing the light, and the coven being. What's manipulating her into the darkness, right? Right. Uh, so in the 2018 version, we get Susie, who's 
very mysterious and confident right mm-hmm. off the bat. We don't know a whole lot about her family except for the fact that she's a Mennonite and she left. <laughs> so they keep okay. In all the articles I read, they keep saying that she's Mennonite. I thought she was Amish. No, no, because she, she was ma- talking about how the Mennonites broke away from the Amish because they were too. They were too. The the Mennonites were too like jazzy, and her mom was like, "No, her mom is super strict, and the Mennonites are the ones who are less." strict than the Amish people are. No, I think she says that they broke away because the Amish were too strict. But her mom did not seem strict, or her mom did not seem loosey-goosey at all. Well, I mean... Her mom seemed very strict. Loosey-goosey and strict in... In (laughs) In Mennonite slash Amish communities. When compared to the communities around them are... Everything I've read is saying that she's Mennonite, but I always thought that she was Amish. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's Mennonite. I'm pretty sure she's Amish, Um, but but whatever, I'll watch it again. (laughs) They they do give a little bit of conversation about it. Um, there there's the the flashback to her mom saying that I don't remember the words exactly, but she thought that there was something wrong with her. Oh yeah, she was like inherently scared of her because she knew that her daughter was not right, not right and from like from birth, from like a sinful point of view. Yeah, right. Um, which we eventually learn is because she's a witch. Yep. Uh, and so her presentation in the remake is actually almost like a combination of Olga from the original film and mm-hmm. Susie, mm-hmm. um, because she has this inner knowledge, right? This inner, uh, I guess, witchiness. Je to ne her. sais quoi. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we, can go, we can call it that. How do you say um, that in German? Um, but she also. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. That was. <laughs> I don't mean that. <laughs> um, but she also packed the confidence that Olga had in the yes. original film. Uh, like, Olga is, is is very brash at the beginning of the movie. And it's actually one of the more defining characters. Uh, yeah. she's, she's, she's immediately recognizable for, for fans of the film mm-hmm. in general. Um, and she's got one of the most memorable scenes. I think Susie has that same impact from the from the moment that you see her in the remake. Yeah. Uh, all the way to the very end. Uh, she's... she's, she's, she's she dominates the film, which is weird for me to say about Dakota Johnson. <laughs> well, and especially coming into because she is soft spoken, but she's commanding in her presence. Exactly, she has this like very kind of like wafy, whispery voice, but she is like, "Yo, I'm gonna do it." Yeah. Me- Sometimes I only need to be told twice. Right? Put me in, coach. <laughs> yeah, but she's the other thing that I thought was very interesting is like in, in her first conversation when she sits down with one of the, the professors at the academy or one of the instructors at the academy she says she's strangely drawn to the academy and she doesn't know why yes, yes. and so maybe this is like an experiment in self-discovery on mm-hmm. top of everything else maybe she doesn't know what she is no and that's a question like to, you know has she always been mother suspiria i argue that she wasn't okay and see i would argue that she was interesting Interesting. Uh, so, but she, anyway, she's drawn to this place, yes. and she does not know why. She's drawn to this place, and she she actually goes through hell to get to this place. Unlike Susie with the Z in the original film, who arrives uh, full of hope and innocence. She she it's not until she like the very first scene of the film, right? She's walking through the through mm-hmm. the airport. At the Munich airport, and she's she's happy, and then all of a sudden she the doors fly open, and she gets the gust of wind, and we get the first introduction of red, right? right. And, and, and it all hits her all at once, uh-huh. and all of a sudden that's the first glimpse that something is going to change, something is going to break this right. girl before we get to the end of the movie. Whereas in the remake, I don't feel like that happens. She's drawn to it, like I said. Her circumstances are a lot more bleak. She mm-hmm. doesn't really seem to have too much of a choice. And the scenario, the setting is hopeless from the get-go. It is. Well, she had no 
she had no real reason to be able to get into that dance academy anyways. Right. Right. But I feel like in the original... That's not true. She could do Volk real well. She could do Volk real well. But even the in the original, you we were saying when the doors open, it's the first like thing I've read. Even like people in that scene when they're in the airport, she's wearing that white coat. And there are all these people behind her wearing all this red. And there's that... That, it's just very that soundtrack. Yeah, I guess I mean like, like in terms of lighting. Yeah, but it's just the like, first time it hits. Yeah, but I feel like you know that something's gonna be fucked up with that from the beginning. But that it's supposed to be that Goblin soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the, the the confidence that Susie has in the remake takes off almost immediately with the most apparent parent scene being the initial dance sequence. So Olga throws the fit right, challenging Madame Blanc. To uh, and storms out of the studio. Yeah. And Susie is immediately able to jump in and assume the lead dance, recalling it from memory with some assistance from Blanc, but they're yep. channeling something and it contorts Olga's body and it right. turns out that there's some sort of, like, she is this conduit of magic on top of her ability to be able to recite this dance from, from almost memory. So, oh, go ahead. So this is where I'm going to jump in and kind of split the tie between you guys as to whether or not she was Mother Suspiria from the start. Okay. Um, because the the argument is that Mother Suspiria, and this kind of ties back to um, Madame Marcos as well, is that they're looking for a vessel. Right. Inherently, the vessel's empty, and it needs to be strengthened and channeled right. uh, in order to support uh, any of the, I guess, three mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she shows up to the Academy as that empty vessel of Mother Suspiria, and as the abilities and energy from the other dancers around her get channeled into her is how she like ascends and transforms. So she was, in your opinion, she was always mother Suspiria. Yes. And this, so, and, and the, and the talents and stuff that she gets from the other dancers. So when, when Olga gets contorted and pees all over herself, uh-huh. um, when the other dancer who can jump, whose name escapes me, Sarah, when, when Sarah gets, was uh, it? I don't think it was Sarah. Sarah wasn't the no, jumper. No, it wasn't Sarah. Sarah, Sarah was the one was... who I thought looked like David Bowie. Sarah was the friend who... No, it was Mia Goth's character. No, right? she no, wasn't no. the jumper. The jumper was very, very tall. Yeah, the jumper was super oh, tall. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm th- I've, I've, we're talking about different stuff. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but as those abilities and those uh, characters kind of like, I guess, life force and energy gets transferred into her uh, and she becomes more perfect and she becomes more adept, I think that's when she starts to realize that you know she is actually mother superior but she, I, I feel like she's been that way from the start okay. she was just an empty vessel mm-hmm. hmm. let's talk about that scene the dancing scene because that was the scene where people were freaked out and walking out right we're, we're, we're getting up and leaving yeah right um what did we think about that because that and that was also pretty heavily featured in the um trailers yeah yeah, I uh, I think I think it was very intense, uh, especially watching it on the big screen. Uh, this was one of the one of the two scenes that had me watching it literally between mm. like my fingers <laughs> covering my face. And it was long. It was <laughs> it over was four long. minutes long. It was yeah. very long. It was uh, it was one of those one of those moments. Right, we kept I kept teasing my wife. <laughs> about about uh, it won't be so bad come see it with us right thing. and i uh, we i got home that night <laughs> and i literally looked at her and i was like i'm really glad you didn't see that with us yeah because she would have walked out broke she probably would have been one of those people that said i can't do this and walked out and walked out <laughs> i think yeah the fact that she it, that it was very long and the fact that at the end of it she was still alive i think yeah. was one of the things i was like because I, I, I it was one of those things where i did not feel like i 
breathed for yeah, like because they they put those hooks into her into her and, she, Adam. and she's just and like the ribs with adam yeah and they put her they they and lift her like, up ah, off the ground and her eyes are moving i'm like yeah. oh she's, lord she's just, groaning with every yeah hook. Like, she's oh. just drooling and peeing on herself and groaning it's, it's interesting. and her body looks like a fucking pretzel this yep. is another point where the movie starts to divide from the original right so like at, when when we notice uh um sarah's death right or i'm sorry uh patricia's death in the in the original film, yeah, it's quick. Yep, it's quick. There's no torture. There's nothing. There's no, no, no. El- elongation of the suffering. Whereas in this movie, every one of the characters, except in fact, the only character in the original that is even revived is Sarah, mm-hmm. and I think she's like a golem at that point, right? She's not necessarily like a living vessel anymore. I think I think she's a flesh golem at that point. Okay. Um, Whereas every character in this one is almost like the coven, like makes them suffer. For yeah. as, uh, they pro- they prolong it as much as they possibly can to keep them in this darkness and keep the and and, and Olga is, is the first one we as an audience get to witness this happen. To. Mm-hmm. And when we it, it, they take it to the next level, right? Because we bump into Olga again when Sarah discovers her and she's missing locked her, up in the crypt. Yeah, she's missing her her hands and feet. Right. Yep. And it's just like, all right, so like how much, <laughs> how much, what's the, I guess that was a, an issue that I was trying to figure out, right? What, what is the point? <laughs> it's their suffering. But like, what's that do? What does what do? What does their, what because, does prolonging their suffering do for this coven? What is the point of keeping them alive? Because they're the powerful who take, who pray and take no pity on the weak. They use them for their own benefit, and when they're no longer useful to them, they just throw them away. And remember, they, but that's not necessarily true because we witnessed the we witnessed uh, one of the instructors commit suicide, and I that's think, ultimately one of the worst forms of weakness. She, right? like, I think, she committed suicide because she knew who Susie was. Because su- as soon as Susie walked into that door for her interview. She was at the top of the balcony. And she was panicking. And she was panicking. I feel like she... And could, she was the last vote, right? As to And which... she was the last vote. She could sense something about Susie because it wasn't until the end that Tilda Swinton was like, something is wrong. Do not do this. And they all told her to shut up. I feel like that one woman who looked crazy... She knew. She knew that, Su- that there Those was something wrong. Those glasses gave her vision. This, this whole... One of the whole themes of this movie, right, is is like almost like a political power struggle. Absolutely. And so it's not it's not everybody that's lined up with... Helena Marcos. No, like it's not. It's, at the end, Susie doesn't kill the entire coven. She only kills about half of. But them. I think no. She, but the one I that the was... one that the one that committed suicide sided with Marcos. Very hesitantly at that. She was the she was the deciding see, vote. Yeah, she was the that. very okay. last vote. And then she stabbed herself in the neck. Well, no, because there were two scenes. There were, there, mm-hmm. She was the very last vote when the, the scene we were talking about earlier, where it's all the breakfast like scene. the the, the right. telepathic stuff. She's the very last vote, and as soon as she makes the vote, she slouches down. And then they're having that dinner. It was dinner later or they're something or yeah, another they, breakfast. Yeah. And that's when she kills herself. But at that point, she's already seen uh, Susie do the dance, do the dance and realize like there's these glasses are letting me see some shit. Yeah. Her glasses. <laughs> yeah, it, was. <laughs> it was her glasses. So, yeah, I think she killed herself because she knew she she knew that she sided on. She took the wrong side and she was fucked either way at that. Right. Point. Mm-hmm. OK. All right. Uh, yes, it was those glasses. They yeah. were some Coke bottle glasses. They too. were some Coke bottle glasses. Uh, but going back to Susie, the coven doesn't necessarily try to hide any of its power from Susie. Instead, it almost welcomes her in. It's partly because of Madame Blanc and some of the sort of 
uh, there's some tension there, right? It's not. I don't want to call it sexual per se. I do in my notes, but I don't want to call it like there's something deeper. There's a, a connection between those two that is intimate on a level that doesn't exist with her or a, and any of the other instructors, right? The first time we notice it is when she's brushing her hair. Mm-hmm. We get the close-up shot of Susie's face, and she never looks at her. She's just facing away from her, but but. Uh, um, Tilda Swinton is, is staring very intently at her. Mm-hmm. And I think it's part uh, uh, partly to do with the fact that she recognizes that there's something more to Susie than is led on initially. But at the right. same time, there is some sort of infatuation there. Uh, and it happens again when they're both sitting at the heads of the mm-hmm. tables um, after they've, they're, when they're doing their celebratory dinner yeah. after doing uh, the Volk dance. Right. Um, and there's just there's a level of intimacy that exists between those two characters, and like I said, maybe se- sexual isn't the right word for it, but there is a it's there very is a, intimate. There is a uh, a tension, a pull between those two that's almost on a, a a level to the point where it's kismet. Yeah. Uh, that that and and I think you know it's more realized throughout the film, uh, but I think that's one of the reasons that she's almost welcomed into this coven and why they appreciate her magic. Whereas like in the original Susie is meant to be something that's like destroyed, right? They have got, they have, they have to get rid, Let's of, get her. rid of her. Yes. Um, she's a complete antithesis of yeah. what they're trying to do. Um, and so, uh, Susie's supposed to be this vessel for mother Marcos, which we talked about. Um, where, uh, whereas in the original, she's, she's ultimately the killer of. Yeah. Mother. Yeah. They're never trying to groom Susie to be a body for mother Marcos. Right. Um, and so, like we said, she ends up being herself Mother Superiorum, uh, or Superiorum. Um, but one interesting thing is is there's this theme of, of rebirth, I think, that's going on throughout the entirety of the film, right? Um, so instead of killing uh, the coven, she's almost killing the coven's like loose ends, right? She's, she, it's like um, doing a culling. Right to ensure the health of the coven in the long term. Mm-hmm. It's like when when wolf packs don't or know that they can't last through the winter, so they kill their young. Mm-hmm. In, ensure to ensure that the pack can survive the long term. That's kind of how I equated to this. Uh, and and the scene where she kills Olga, Sarah, and Patricia is almost a source of kindness, right? She asks them what they want. Oh, absolutely. And she's yeah. like, you know, they, they, oh, they all want to die. I would want to die in that situation. Yeah. My guts are literally hanging out on the fucking floor. Fucking kill me. Yeah. Because they, <laughs> they, had, they suffered and had pain under a false prophet. Right. Right. And so she came and to... And it's this 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 vision of, of or almost rebirth through death. Mm-hmm. Uh, for For not just those three characters, but the entirety of the coven and herself. Because she kind of dies, she's no longer Susie. No, right? She's Mother she's Suspiria Mother at that point. From that point on, as right. soon as she tears open her chest, mm-hmm. and then we get this this the sigh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this, this gaping wound that literally sighs. And the demon uh, comes up and says, "What? Here I am." Well, or, she, no, she says, "It yeah. is me," or, or something like is, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I am. Um, no, she says, "I am she." That's what it is. And then she's like, "Fucking, I'll kill you all." Right? Yeah. And <laughs> Vote for me next time, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was watching. I was also super stoned. I reminded like a very like weird like uh like rally. <laughs> like, yeah. Don't vote for you. Just like vote for me. Boom. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's one of those interesting and and one of the reasons that I, that I do appreciate this remake is because it is 
it's not necessarily out of left field for us because we we that one of the images that they released for this fucking mm-hmm. movie was such a huge spoiler. Yeah. In terms of that, uh, so I mean, I think I think collectively, at least I I knew it was coming, considering you guys had forgotten that Tilda Swinton was like one of the characters. In the <laughs> yeah. Movie. Uh, at least I knew it was coming. You know, I knew it was what was going to happen. Right. Like mm-hmm. you don't see that kind of a scene and and not know how it's going to turn out. It was just a matter of when, when, not necessarily how. Right. Uh, and so when we got to the culmination of this movie, it's like, all right, you know, I can really appreciate what Guadagnino is doing here. He's not like, like other reboots that I really enjoy. He's not just copying the, the, the original movie. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's taking it in its own direction. And I think, I think that's, that's the start of that ending scene mm-hmm. with her, Ripping open her chest and saying it is I and stepping down the stairs after Tilda Swinton gets her head hacked off. Right, but she does not die. <laughs> yeah, she nope. doesn't die. Uh, oh, that plus like the, the dancing pyramid of people. Yeah. Like, that's a really cool sequence. That's an amazing sequence. I think parts of it are really I think good. it's interesting too because we were talking kind of about psychology and Freud and Jung. Um Jung focused a lot on like uh, archetypes and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. one of the ones that he was really focused on was the mother. And the mother is kind of like the, um, com- you know, the, the same. She comes very much hand in hand with um, rebirth. And right. he said in one of his notes that uh, psychological rebirth, it's one of his particular focus. And it's induced a lot or simulated by ritual. Okay. Which I thought was kind of funny, you know, because they are rebirthing Mother Suspiria through this ritual, like ritualistic dance. Okay. All right. Which, which it's I, hard for me not to think of rebirth through ritualistic dance without thinking about that episode of Bob's Burgers <laughs> where, where Gene is yeah. in the tomb. <laughs> or no, I'm sorry. It's not Gene. It's, uh, uh, what the hell's her name uh, with the bunny ears? Oh, Louise? Yeah, Louise. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, no, I won't do it. I'll pay you money. <laughs> I'll <laughs> pay you money. <laughs> it's hard for me. Not, I'm not trying to belittle it. It's just... No. It's well, I mean, I, and I'm, I'm by no means... You know, I didn't take a lot of psychology classes or anything like that. So this is really just stuff that I read online. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm not... There are many people I know who would explain this much better than me. And also, I feel like it is really interesting, too, is when Susie kind of... Not decided, but became... Mother Suspiria, it was at the same time that her mother died. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. That's another example of, of, of death through rebirth, mm-hmm. or rebirth through death. Um, because when you think of mother, the first thing that comes to mind is your obviously your biological mother. Yes. But then she has the coven. She is the mother of that. The witches for the students of the Dance Academy, they were their mothers. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I feel like mother is just like a, just a, it's a huge, huge theme. It's a huge theme. And, and mothers and rebirth are pretty much like, you know, intrinsically linked. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think there's more to it than just that. I mean, the whole Volk dance, the immediate thing is that Tilda Swinton mentions is that this is meant to be a, a dance resembling birth, resembling right. rebirth in particular, and saying that it has to convey this overall sense of reemergence. Uh, the, uh, actually, I think we covered pretty much everything well, and I think, And I guess we definitely, I feel like we definitely kind of mentioned it, but also I feel like the rebirth of I know that a lot of people say that the kind of 1977 like East Berlin versus West like West Berlin kind of backstory is 
too much or it doesn't it doesn't tie in well enough but for me that that's a bunch of rebirth too like you know mm-hmm. you're having the rebirth of a nation after mm-hmm. world war Two, and you know you have the east and the west the old and the new and one has to die before the other can flourish and i feel like that is very much also about the setting gotcha the setting that the movie is in yeah and i can agree with that um why don't we talk about one of the most intriguing aspects of of both of these films the use of color uh the cinematography and let's 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 talk about the sets and stuff too all right, so use of color here and cinematography and sets. Fuck it, let's just go into all of it at the same time. Uh, <laughs> there are colors and sets. There are and, and cinematography and, 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 and people and sound and sound. And... But I think this is one of the most obvious differences between the two films, right? So uh, I think I even mentioned it when we first saw the trailer. Yeah. Before it was. Like, oh yeah. This looks yeah. incredibly muted yep. compared to the original. Uh, so the original Suspiria is very vibrant, bursting with hues of cool blues and insidious reds and neon greens while the original has a muted very intentionally mind you uh but it isn't it just isn't vibrant up until the the final act of the film right um so let's start with the original film uh a lot of the film's color comes from luciano tavoli who is the principal photographer for the passenger tenebrae and several other italian movies throughout the 70s and 80s his inspiration came from the grandiose colors of walt disney really Uh, yeah he was very inspired specifically by Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, Argento approached Tavoli with an idea for a gothic fairy tale. That's how he sold Suspiria to pretty much everybody, actually. It was calling it a gothic fairy tale. Um, <laughs> that seems so misleading. <laughs> like, I get it. And it actually strangely makes sense. But if, if somebody came to me and was like, Suspiria is a gothic fairy tale, I'd be like, Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for Tavoli, one of the most fundamental issues was balancing the choice of colors in accordance with uh, Giuseppe Bassan, the film's production designer. Uh, they were often working with, without direction from Argento, but instead found themselves inspired by his fairy tale vision, choosing to enhance the story with a profound color palette. The whole idea was to use primary colors to illustrate an everyday flow of life, then use complementary colors, primarily yellow, to corrupt them, to contaminate them. Uh, the goal was to use primary colors to destroy people's perceptions of those colors, removing their soothing elements and instead using them to enhance the total abstraction of reality. Mm. That's direct quote from him, actually. Okay. <laughs> uh, these kind of enhancements made certain scenes stand out. For instance, the Munich airport. We talked about this a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the initial shot as Susie arrives, it's, it's very, you know, kind of normal for the rest of the film. You know, you get a direct shot of her. You mentioned there were some reds in the background. Right, but it looks people. like a regular airport. But it looks like a regular airport. It becomes, It is the music airport. But as Tavoldi put it, once she steps out into the red, into the into the darkness and into the rain, it becomes the Suspiria airport. Mm. Well, as soon as that red hits her. Uh, and he actually goes on to say that it's not the Tons Academy. It's the Suspiria Academy because of their lighting. And uh, it's not Sonia's apartment mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film. It's, yeah. it's the Suspiria apartment. Um, because of the way that the lighting effects all enhance the overall feel of the film. Uh, obviously, this approach was a lot more theatrical and expressionistic, especially when compared to other films of the time. Think of stuff like Eraserhead, uh, oh, yeah. Star Wars, The Hills Have Eyes. All of those were actually pretty muted. They were. Even um, if they had color, they're like the same color tones. Yeah, exactly. Same color palette. Exactly. Um, so the remake... Colors are intentionally muted. In fact, Guadagnino went so far as to ensure that the film used no primary colors for a mm-hmm. majority of its runtime. Uh, he described his vision as being winter-ish, evil, and very dark. Uh, the decision to inc- exclude primary colors was made in accordance with the film's bleak setting amidst Germany on the verge of civil war. Uh, Muck Deprom, Guadagnino's director of photography, went 
for a different take, a very different take, especially according to Argento's vision, mm-hmm. abandoning Tavoli's expressionist approach and instead sought the films of uh, Mikhail Ballas, uh, known for Good Goodfellas and The Last Temptation of Christ, which we talked about last week. <laughs> um, did we? Yeah, we so I did. thought it was a couple weeks ago. But either uh, so, we talked about week. it. Yeah, we talked. We remember, I, I said no. It was last week because we was talked it? about the satanic lawsuit and and how. Oh, that's, yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yep. That, yep. Uh, the, the Christian Church had sold sued over that uh, film. But the, uh, the and Reiner Fassbender, who some consider as the father of new German cinema, the new German cinema movement, uh, as reference points, Guadagnino went so far as to ensure that the costume design even featured mainly browns, blacks, mm. and intentional darkened blues and greens. Um, it's important to note that in spite of this, this red does begin to saturate the film as as it goes on. Mm-hmm. It doesn't appear as true red until the very end. But initially, reds become come primarily from Susie Banyan's hair color. Yep. She's a redhead, and every time they focus in on her, we get these these that that very intense shot as she's hunched over after this. She does Volk for the first time in mm-hmm. the maroon uh, tank top right. and, her, and her hair. Um, so we get it there. Next, we have the dance costumes that are created for Volk. Mm-hmm. All the women at the Academy are first dressed. This is when we first see them dressed in these deep, flowing red garments, right? Uh, as the dance continues, <clears throat> excuse me. As the dance continues, we witness the film's first drops of blood with Sarah's broken leg. Oh yeah, because uh, oh, yep. there's not any blood when when uh, Olga gets mutilated. Well, no, not mutilated. just pee and drool. Yeah, just pee and drool. There's no blood in that scene. Right, and when um, Chloe that's Grace, not the first Chloe... drop of blood we see though. It's it the one that I remember. No, the first when Chloe Grace Moretz dies, you don't see. No, anything. no, when the instructor kills herself. Oh. Oh, you're right. You're right. When you're she right. when she kills her, when she stabs herself, like there's a giant okay, so geyser. That's the first, that's, yeah, that's the first drop of blood that we see. All right, so flip that around. Sorry, I'm not entirely correct. On I mean, that. they're not they're it's not far hard to apart. Write this from memory when you're only watching the movie one time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you can't just like rewind it and wa- rewind it. Who the fuck rewinds anything? Yeah. <laughs> Pause it and like or start it over. You start it over. See, that's why that's why I said it's hard to watch movies in theaters now. It is. It is. Uh, but some movies you have to see in theaters. It's true, like Suspiria. I would agree with that. Uh, then we come to the post dance dinner scene where Banyan's hair is the centerpiece of the shot, mm-hmm. right? And uh, then finally, the climax of the film is where the red really begins to saturate everything. The lighting changes to a very vibrant red that's not used at any other point throughout the course of the film and it closely resembles the the Tavoldi's original designs and the scene becomes more and more covered in blood itself on top of the red um I think that this was kind of and this is just personal opinion analyzing the scene that it was kind of done to over to to the blood at the end of the film is very CGI Mm. Um, as the heads explode, it's the it's, blood. In the the interesting thing though is because everything the, the colors of everything shift to red in that closing sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, the blood is almost black. It is, but I think it's just because of the red itself. Yeah, like, it's the like, blood is still is still red. You can tell it's still red. But this, yeah, and, and the red in that final scene is more like instead of a neon red, it's more like an infrared. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you're looking at it through like an infrared. You know, binoculars or whatever. Right. That's kind of what I. It wasn't like super, super vibrant. But I, I'm actually interested very... in like hearing your opinions on this. Uh, I think it was kind of done to kind of uh, nullify the absurdity of the amounts of CGI blood that we witnessed at that point. Mm. Um, it actually it reminded me a lot of of that scene in Kill Bill, where mm-hmm. Uma Thurman is taking on the crazy 88s, mm-hmm. right? And it goes from full color 
to as soon as she cuts a person in half, it, it goes, goes to black, black and white. white. And that was done intentionally by by Tarantino to avoid an NC-17 rating. Okay. Uh, in this, obviously, though, I think it's just <laughs> done to kind of like... In, in the same sense that like Tarantino used black and white to, to make it less... Vi- makes the, make the violence less prominent. I think the red here kind of covers up the fact that we're witnessing so much blood exploding all over the place. Did it do that for you guys? That's what it did for me, at least. It was jarring. It 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 definitely took away the sense of violence from it because she's just walking away, or she's walking around pointing at people and their heads and yeah. exploding, blown off. Yeah. Um. It was a little comical. I I think. I, I would agree with that. Like, and mainly because of the fact that it's just so jarring because of the fact that it's, it's at least for me, it was CGI. I was, we'll get into that in just a little bit. But I was tor- totally torn out of the movie. It became super critical of that scene because of a, a bunch of things that happened. This being one of them, the but, CGI blood being one of so, them. Do you think maybe they changed the color palette to kind of mask the fact that perhaps he had these really grandiose ideas about what he wanted the final scene to be and cinematographically could not do it. That's possible. And well, maybe just kind of hit it between like a muted, not a muted color point, but a very like let's one soak color. It in red yes, so let's it's not soak quite it in as red. Apparent. It's like, you know, it's kind of like in Photoshop, you take a really shitty, not, I'm not saying this is a shitty photo, but for instance, you take a really shitty photo. If you put a, a filter on it, it's going it to look, better. it's going to look better. People do on Instagram all the time. Uh, so I mean, Guadagnino <laughs> also said though, that like, the color palettes and the way that they were used, and I think it applies to this scene as well, um, were deliberately chosen to encompass the idea, in his words, of German autumn, which is why none of the colors are primary, except for that final scene where everything's kind of bled into red, mm-hmm. uh, and the blood is darker, and it's not a bright red. It's it's a no. deeper red. Uh, it's he not says, a giallo red. Um, <laughs> no, it's not a giallo red. Yeah, that's why the colors aren't primary. They don't pop at you. Um, and I hope that they infiltrate you and they go deep into you. So it's it's one of those, like, you can view it through the lens of, like, you still know what's going on. You still know it's supposed to be blood. And it's it, it's supposed to resonate with you more than just, like, a comically giallo red right. geyser bursting out of every other person's right. head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it might have looked sillier if it was more realistic in color. Yeah. Consi- considering how muted the entire film has been, I think if it was more realistic as far as like the colors mm-hmm. of the blood, I th- I think it would have been lost. Because it's also it's an absurd idea. Yeah. <laughs> like it's to just see brains exploding, like it might have looked silly. Maybe so. Put a filter on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but cinematography is also an area where these two films uh, couldn't be more different uh, there are some similarities for instance both of the films were shot on 35 millimeter film stock both films favored sets over shots uh, uh, done on location mm. although Guadagnino's film featured abandoned buildings that were on location but were completely rebuilt on the inside okay. whereas Argento's originally largely featured sets that were built from the ground up for except for three scenes in the movie uh, where they did some on location mm-hmm. stuff um but that's where the similarities end. Uh, Guadagnino's vision was, was significantly more mature than Argento's, and wanting to capture the well, Argento wanted to capture that innocence, innocence of youth, and uh, they they both began to kind of branch off in terms of visuals. For instance, Argento initially wanted to use girls that were aged twelve to thirteen. That's in this right. <laughs> uh, 
But Italian censorship boards wouldn't let him get away with it. They couldn't. He couldn't portray the kind of violence he wanted to with girls that were twelve to thirteen. It just wasn't. No, that'd be happen. ridiculous, right? Uh, so Argento instead hired women that were in their late teens, early twenties, and employed a number of uh, camera angles and set design pieces that created an illusion of youth to help the viewer realize that these women are much younger than they appear to mm-hmm. be. Uh, one of the most famous key points is the way that Argento shot doors. Every door in the entire yeah. movie features a handle that's almost shoulder level with the people that are involved. If you notice Sarah's scene when she's fleeing the killer right before she falls into the room with razor wire, she locks the door, and that lock is at shoulder level, not at waist level like nope. normal doors. Uh, there's also a scene with Susie when she's opening the door to her dormitory before she starts sneaking around after she disposes of all her food, uh, and that handle is also at shoulder level. Um, in addition, there's a lot of objects in the film that are shot from very bizarre perspectives, uh, kind of like the Lord of the Rings, how mm. Peter Jackson did a lot of interesting camera angles to make the hobbits look like they were tinier than they were. Um, uh, so objects were shot from bizarre scenes. For instance, the jeweled peacock in the room where Susie encounters Helena Marcos. Mm-hmm. That peacock is not that big. No. It's not that big at all. Uh, but the angle at which it's shot makes it look like it's the the size of her entire torso. This is intentionally done so she looks smaller and more timid than she actually is. Um, however, like, well... Another big example is the hallways, especially in the uh, apartments at the beginning of the film when we witnessed Patricia die. Mm-hmm. That hallway looks massive. It does. Absolutely grandiose. And it's it's the set wasn't that big. It was just a lot of uh, from the ground up camera angles and, and interesting kind of like plays on... on it tricks, camera tricks, mm-hmm. I guess, um, to, to make things look much, much larger than they actually were. Um, it's actually a method that was, was taken to heart by uh, uh, Kubrick in The Shining. Yeah, in The Shining, I was in just going to say. Uh, he, he emulated that a lot in, in The Shining. Um, Tavoldi mentions uh, also kind of a, a pursuit of overexposure in his shots. He said that it was a natural evolution from his film The Passenger. In The Passenger, I searched... To force the strength of real light, often overexposing, bringing negative, uh, bringing the negative near the shoulder of the sensiometric curve to burn up some of the details. I did this in Suspiria as well, but at a much higher level, overexposing through the intensity of a specific color in a specific shot with the negative. To kind of translate. He used filters. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, does that sound like he it was, used a filter? That was kind of like an early form. He, he basically overexposed on a color until it looked like a filter was placed over the over the resulting shot. Uh, so where the original set out to make Dance Academy seem younger, the remake set them all to be much more mature. Mm-hmm. And I think I have to... This another thing I have to applaud the remake for. Its cinematography is one of its strongest points, and at least when it's not when it, trying to emulate 80s music videos. Right. dream sequences those were so weird <laughs> i couldn't i like that fucking that's another big 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 point of contest for me that might be one of the only things that i disliked about that movie. yeah like i and, and i get it from the sense of that it's it's madame blanc infiltrating Susie's dreams mm-hmm. but it happens to not just Susie. it happened to uh was it olga I think no. it happened to a lot of them. Yeah, it happened to uh, um, Sarah, uh, Clumper too. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, they were they were really bizarre. Um, I liked Susie's the best. It made the most sense to me because I feel like a lot of her dream sequences were from her past or kind of like her old home. Yeah. Once again, like the old versus the new kind of like, this is your old home. This is your new home. Like which one are you going to choose kind of, mm-hmm. but they were very disturbing. And I don't know that they were 
they were just very jolting. Yeah. And I don't know that they were like the best. They could have they kind of reminded me of like the the um I feel like you said this in the ring. <laughs> you know, like the video that you have to watch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> like yeah, seven yeah. days. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of like with very quick shots of Especially different the one things. of her like climbing the door jam. Yeah. I was like, I'm just like if you watch it in seven days, you're gonna <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna die. <laughs> uh but one of the one of the biggest points of interest in in the remake cinematography is its relation to the choreography and the dancing itself. The original one has very little actual dancing for a movie about a dance academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the remake is bursting with dance scenes that stray from the tradition and are actually mounted firmly in modernism with violent and jagged movements that almost resemble thrashing more than they do anything traditional. Based uh, on German expressionism. I was going to say, this is German expressionism yeah. dancing. Uh, so there are several camera techniques that are used to make the movements seem much more intense. They uh, Extreme close-ups. Mm-hmm. They both occur within the faces of the characters and the highlights of their moving limbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's much more panning camera work in this movie than there is in the original in terms of both the choreography of the dancing and uh, just setting up s- shots in general, like uh, in- introducing set pieces and that right. kind of thing. Um, and uh, Argento favored still shots from angles that emphasize the size of a room in comparison to the girls, whereas Guadagnino illustrated... Uh, the power of women by making them more a part of the sets and emphasizing close-ups and emphasizing... Uh, I, I go back to that shot of, of Tilda as she's looking at, at Susie as she cuts her hair. That's a great example. Or uh, the shot of Susie as she's bending over after she does Volk. I mean, mm-hmm. they're like, these are very highlighted shots that I feel like a lot of people grab onto um, as, as poignant parts of the movie. In they're terms very of intimate cin- shots. Yeah, uh, in terms of cinematography, and I think that exists more in this... Whereas the only one that I can really think of in terms of the original is that iconic scene where Susie is grasping the knife right before she stabs yes. Helena Marcos. Uh-huh. And uh, um, I think when, when you look at the cinematography of the original, it's a lot more about the set pieces than it is the characters. Whereas yeah. in this one, it's more about the characters than it is the set pieces. Yes. Um, so what are your thoughts? Do you guys have any additional inputs on the cinematography? I think that, I mean, no, I think you really nailed it 100%. And this has nothing to do with cinematography. But when we were talking about, I just want to go back real quick, about dancing and how there's not much dancing in the original and there's a, quite a bit of dancing in the new one. Right. I also just really appreciated about this movie. This is much more about like plot and character development, you know, stuff like that subtext is that you really get to know how a dance academy works. You mm. see them practicing. You see them performing, you know what I mean? And you, I just, I really did appreciate that. Like, yeah. They seem more like adults and this was their job. Whereas in the original, it seemed like they were kind of just in a boarding school. But they're not yeah. going to teach you how to dance because they yeah. expect you already know how. Exactly. But here they're like, this is your job. You practice, then you go and perform for people. And to see the people gather for their show, I just, I really, I really liked the whole dancing aspect of this yeah, movie. Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't see any of that in the first one. I mean, like like you said, the, the whole gathering and actually doing a performance, mm-hmm. even, even though that's one of the most intense, like, points of the film, actually being able to see that performance and see how an audience reacts to that performance mm-hmm. is something that, that gives you that, uh, enhances, I think, the overall yes, story. absolutely. Um, and I would totally agree with you there. Um, but cinematography wise, I completely agree. I, I do like all the close up shots of the. Yeah, and like I said, I, I I've got to give this movie applause where it deserves it because it really when it when it nails things well, mm. it do, it knocks it out of the park. 
Um, it's not just like a okay, that was good. No, that was astounding. Like, right. They, like like it's very very well done. Well, and I feel like those shots are very purposeful. It's not just oh, that's going to look cool. I feel like there's reason behind it. Oh, absolutely. Which I I also like. Absolutely. I would. I mean, and and up until you know, just hearing what you said about all of you know the reasons for the original why they did the things that they did for the longest time before you know when I watched this movie for the first or second or third time, it kind of just seemed like it was cinematography over plot line but for no reason other than it just looked really awesome and i you know the more you learn about the movie you know that that's not true but i think that it's easy to kind of pass it off that way right and i mean in spite of the fact that like i think as a viewer you recognize the fact that these girls aren't 12 and 13 right Right. but like well and they pick doughy-eyed women on purpose yeah 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 and i mean like it, it seems kind of voyeuristic when you watch it for the first time before really like knowing exactly what they were going for yeah but once you like kind of start to watch it for a second and a third time for me it was more about like a surreal aspect more mm-hmm. than anything else and so that's what i thought they were going for i was just like oh, okay you know this is kind of like the the, the alice, alice in wonderland, wonderland yeah kind of and uh that's what i was just like all right well this whole thing is supposed to be like you're entranced with the coven it's you're you're I think he, I, the way I perceived it and the way that I forgave it as a, as a viewer before knowing about the fact that he was trying to make them seem Seems. younger than they were mm-hmm. was just like, okay, well, he's trying to cast a spell on his audience, right? Like this whole thing's about a coven, aren't mm-hmm. you? And this is an audience supposed to be just as enchanted as the girls in this, in this dance troupe. Okay. And that's the way that I forgave it. Uh, and I thought that's what the the angle that they were pursuing. And you know, after doing doing some research and learning, that was the the real reason behind it. You right, know, it makes more sense. It takes a little bit of the. It does. I was going to say that point. almost breaks my heart a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> your explanation sounds really nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, let's let's jump into one of the final themes that I think we all kind of want to tackle uh, before we jump into soundtracks and and the, and the the rest of everything. Uh, the role of kind of men in both of the films. Um, we, uh, I'm sure all of us kind of have our opinions on things, but I'll jump into this and, and, and take, take charge on this, this part of the conversation. Cause I noticed a lot of differences here, uh, the way that, that men are perceived. I felt, especially watching it, uh, successive times in a row that the original film, and I, I, this is going to sound a lot more negative than I intend it to be, but I feel like the uh, the original film is a lot more chauvinistic in terms of presentation, especially with the takes on like women in power and witchcraft in general, and kind of like how uh, men kind of perceive what they don't understand, especially in relation to women. Mm-hmm. Like, the original or the new one? In the original. The original. Okay. Uh, so the the big thing that I noticed uh, is is that well, men just in general are much more empowered in the original film than they are in in the uh, remake. Um, most of the people that are victims uh, of the uh, well are women, aside from one, and they're all killed. The, the women themselves are killed by a man in mm-hmm. in every scene. Yeah. Whereas the man, the only scene that we see with the death of a man involves something supernatural, mm-hmm. uh, which was something that, like, you know, I'm not really quite sure how to dissect that or how to interpret that. Uh, it, 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 I think it was supposed to kind of illustrate some sort of vulnerability. I also think that it's supposed to imply that Albert is the only one that's doing it, um, aside from the fact that the women 
are the ones with the power. <laughs> well, no, it's 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 like all right. Well, because they, I think Albert is actually the one who's killing the girls. He is because you see that hairy arm. Yeah, you like, see it, that hairy it's arm. Absolutely a man. So I think I think that it's implied that he's supposed to be the one killing them. Uh, and maybe you can dismiss it as something like, all right, this this guy. The only way that they could find this guy was in a public place. Right, and maybe have sending Albert out to kill him in a public place would have been a little bit more suspect than just using enchantments or or, or your witchcraft to be able to get something supernatural to happen. Especially since he was adjacent to the police officers at that point, because uh, they did notice something was wrong pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering if you can dismiss that that easily, but I'm not really sure kind of how to latch on to that fact because it is it's very slasher whenever the women are involved, mm-hmm. but as soon as the man gets gilled, it's it's supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, take that as you will. That's more of a uh, something I noticed. No, than I mean, it was anything there, else. there are a lot of people who would agree that the original is very misogynistic in the 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 lens that it views women. Um, it does. Well, I, I mean, in the, the sense that like. The majority of the violence in women, as you mentioned, as far as the slash is concerned, is always a guy. Um, but aside from that, all of the male characters in the movie are pretty much cast off to the side. They're they're in the remake or the original. In the original, they're viewers for the most part. Well, they also hold the power, right? Because they're they're so we don't witness anything aside from from the blind piano man. All the males in the troupe itself. They're not really mentioned aside from one dance scene and the right. initial love interest that Susie has. Yeah, like they're they're just off to the side. Right. A lot of the violence is also perpetuated, and not just violence, but like well, aggression is just also perpetuated by the women. I don't know that they'd be pushed off to the side. It was only a man who could tell Susie what was going on. In exactly, her own home. that's what I was about yeah. ready to to launch into next. Was that it? Was that in the in this film the the men have all the answers? Right. Uh, I Susie was like, "What the fuck's going on?" Right. <laughs> uh, it's it's one of those interesting points where where you know Susie is seeking answers, is trying to figure out what's going on, and and the men have it, and you do have that kind of parallel in the in the remake of the film. Obviously, Klemperer is, is the one with the answers, uh, but he only sort received of. he yeah. only well he only received those because of his intimacy or his involvement with with Patricia, the fact that he was doing psychological stuff for well, and Patricia. after denying her truths for a very long time, right, right, and um, not just her truths either, no. He Klemper's character for pretty much the whole movie didn't listen and just kind of disregarded all of the things in his life that women were telling him. Right. Well, he 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 only has those answers because a woman kind of gave them to him yeah, in the first place, absolutely. right? Whereas in the re, in the original film, these men have the answers already to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. their own research. Yeah, they're just experts on all yeah, these things. <laughs> that's just what they have. Uh but one of the things that I noticed that was was really interesting is that like men are so much more vulnerable in the remake of the movie, right? So women hold all the power, which we just mentioned. It flips that the original's context on its head completely, right? The girls are still the ones who are suffering, but it's much more self-inflicted by their own sex in terms of presentation. The students at the academy also seem to be much more aware of what's going on, whereas the women in the first one are much more dismissive of what's going on around them, right? Uh, also... Uh, once Klemperer gets involved, right, he surrenders to the guiles of womanhood. He gets that scene where Ankh reappears, his wife. Mm. Uh, and it turns out that he's just been kind of enchanted by by uh, Hewler and that he's lured it into the coven and quite literally stripped naked and left begging for his life as he watches death unfold around him. And he's unable to do anything except cry, right? So this is this is an example of ultimate vulnerability for, mm-hmm. for male figures. Uh, so... 
at the end of the film, Klemperer survives, uh, but he's robbed of everything. He's rendered powerless uh, when Susie stops by to visit him. And, and once again, he's been stripped completely naked, both literally and figuratively, because he loses all his memories. He doesn't mm-hmm. even know who he himself is at the end of this movie. Um, since Klemperer is one of the only male figures... I just I, I think it's it's one of those it's it's purposeful on that film to kind of show the vulnerability of of I guess the male you called it the superego mm-hmm. male superego if that's what it's supposed to be like like stripped completely to its rawest form and ha- literally having to be rebuilt from the ground well up especially being by the end of the movie being stripped down to its rawest form by people who are normally the ones who are the disenfranchised right so you see yeah, yeah absolutely. You see, you know, Klemper's wife is gone. You know, he she told him for a long time that, you know, something's going on and he chose not to believe her. And then he, at the same time, you know, was looking after, um, what's her name? His first patient. Patricia. Patricia, thank you. You know, and he also chooses not to believe her. And there's a, there's a line that one of the witches say when they finally you know, lull him back to, to the... Madame Vendegas. What does she say? She says, like, pe- they, women, women tell you the truth and you tell them they're delusional. Right, which is such a... Which is why he's chosen to play the role of witness. Right, because he has for pretty much his entire life chose to be a passive witness to all of the things that are going around him. Nazism, Nazism, yep. you know, the fall of civil society in Germany, the murder of his wife... The murder of Patricia and then Sarah, who he tries to help, but still doesn't. You know, there's that there's that scene where they're eating, and you know he could say something and he doesn't want to, and then he tries and she leaves. You know, and he's like, "All right, we'll just eat your cake and let's not talk about it anymore." I yeah. feel like I don't know. He he sort of is stripped down to his final form. And should he ever, you know, when he was leaving that coven, if he was going to say anything, nobody would have believed him. Just like no one believed all of the women. In his life, that's actually a good point, and I have to ch- I, I have to introduce this 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 question. What would you do if faced with something so extraordinary? Because it's 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 one thing to call it in terms of witchcraft, right? right. But you're also saying that he just like is dismissing Nazism. Mm-hmm. What are what would you do if you were in that situation? If my him? husband told me, my Jewish husband told me that we needed to get the fuck out, I, I would I would trust him. Is that because he's a man? And I don't know, in, in our family, he, we know we're equals, but I feel like he would listen to me the same. Hmm. But if he came to me in 1930-something, it was like, yo, shit's about to the go time, down. The times we, are changing. Yeah, we need to leave. We need to leave. I would listen to him. And I absolutely hmm. wouldn't let him go on his own without me. Right. Hell would have to freeze over. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh... But yeah, it's one of those. It's it's it's. Uh, I think viewing his character and the extraordinary sense of set of circumstances that he is consistently thrown. Uh, it starts at one point, right, and its lowest point is still extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it just gets heightened and heightened and heightened. And by the time he realizes he's at his breaking point, he realizes that that. There's truth to everything. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there's nothing he can do. No. And it's one of those situations where it's like, all right, well, if he if he would have chosen to leave with his wife, 
mm-hmm. if he would have chosen to escape the circumstances and go headfirst into the great unknown, uh, it, they probably would have died. Yeah. But he would have died with his, with his wife instead of his wife having to find. And it was also very poignant when Susie is telling him about what happened to his wife is that she didn't die alone because she found a coven of women to take care of her and yeah. they had each other. So once again, women, building, female empowerment, female empowerment, women building, building, like building women up. And, but what she thought about before she died was him. And so when she erases his memory, yeah, he, it's sad because he doesn't know what happened to his wife and he doesn't know that in her final moment, she thought of him, but at the same time, he doesn't have to have the guilt. The fact that he couldn't save his wife, he couldn't save Patricia, he couldn't save Sarah. He doesn't know Susie, but she's crazy. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Well, I mean, it's, it's another example of, of the whole the whole uh, rebirth through death mm-hmm. or the death through re- rebirth. Well, and there's so much about angle. and there's so much about being a witness. It's being a, a passive witness who does nothing, or you know, an active witness that does something. Okay. So I feel like he lived his entire life as a passive witness and finally had to bear witness. And, and you know, what did she say? Like, we need shame and we need guilt. Just not yours. Just not yours. Because he had already bore witness to all of the shame and guilt that his... I hated that line so much. ...could possibly handle. I hated that line so much. Why is that? So... One of the things that I view this movie through, or or that I, I picked up on in this movie, is kind of the different stories that are going on at the same time, and the the different thematic stories that are going on at the same time. And I think one of the big ones is about guilt, right? Um, primarily with Klemperer, because um, he's like an endless reservoir of guilt for yeah. his entire life. Yeah, that guy's got it hard. Um, but also with 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 Susie herself. Um, she, the backstory between her and her mom, and there seems like there's like a, a latent sense of guilt of leaving her sick and dying mother behind, uh, which kind of explains her attachment to Madame Blanc mm. um, as like the new mo- mother figure. Mm-hmm. Um, but primarily with Klemperer, you know, as as you mentioned, he's been looking for his wife for thirty years. <clears throat> Patricia disappears. Um, after, you know, he writes her off as being delusional and crazy, um, his attempts later on as he's starting to figure things out, uh, with saving Sarah from what's going on there, um, are ultimately, um, fruitless and futile. Um, and then Susie slash Mother Suspiriorum comes along at the end and is like, by the way, all these women were right. Mm -hmm. And this is what happened to all these women. Mm Mm-hmm. And you've lived your life with all this guilt. Now that you've finally seen that everything they were telling you was true. Mm-hmm. And now that you finally believe them, we don't need your guilt. We don't need your shame. Mm. And she just wipes his memory clean. What? what like, there, why? There was an interview with... You go ahead. He's got something. Palmer's got this look yeah. on his face like he got something to say. Do you think that this kind of cl- draws close to the themes that we discussed in Martyrs? Oh, which ones we talked about? Like thirty. The, the end of the the, the end of the she movie. She kills herself at the yeah. end because she's born. She she gets the answer that she's been seeking, and she kills herself at the end of the film. Do you think that we're walking close in parallel with what happens at the end of Martyrs? Potentially, I could see that. Hmm. And I feel like when I watched the movie for the first time, I saw 
her, you know, erasure of his memory as kind of not maybe not a kindness because he won't remember his wife, but maybe as kind of just like a it is what it is type of thing. It's not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily good. It just is. But then in reading an interview with the director, he saw that as being a very bad thing that she left him with no memories. And I think he said something like a person with no memories is not a person at all. Yeah. And so that ties back to what we were talking about earlier with Carl Jung a bit. Um, Klemper is a stand in for Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. Um, and he spe- looks just like him. He does. <laughs> um, or I guess Tilda looks just like him. Um, specifically, uh, he embodies one of the many archetypes that Jung inf- uh, believed informed every individual psyche in this case, the wise old man. Right. Um, and as we've talked about, uh, kind of ad nauseum, the four most important things that uh, Jung thought were rebirth, mother, spirit, and tricksters. Um, and with this and his role as playing the witness, the purpose of that is for Klemper to demonstrate the uh, the concept of the shadow self. Mm-hmm. Um which in all the terrible, ugly things that yeah, in in layman live in your subconscious. Yeah, in layman's terms, uh, it's an archetype that forms the unconscious mind and is made up of all of your repressed shit and instincts and impulses and weaknesses and desires, all the terrible shit that you can do. Um, and it's often referred to as the darker side of the psyche. It's possible that as he discovers his shadow self and comes to like that actualization of it right is when she's like yeah you're you've done everything and all of that is behind you now but now i'm gonna send you back to live in it when Mm -hmm. she wipes all of his memories Hmm. so he had like a self-actualization type of moment and then she took that away from him yeah so he's no longer a self-actualized man so he's gonna go back to being fucking just aimlessly wandering around and touching the corners of his old house did you guys see how the corner was like the A was on one side and like the initials, they were kind of like separate, but together with the heart. Right. Yeah. Just like the Berlin Wall. <laughs> oh, Lord. Also, just like <laughs> oh, fuck Lord. that ending sequence so much. Like that's that's like the closest I've ever come to crying at a horror movie. Oh. Because <laughs> like I've heard plenty of those stories before. Yeah. I was just like, dude, th- this is this is not the right time to hear this stuff. Yeah, uh, not after I've just seen thirty women's heads explode. <laughs> right. Uh, the other quick thing that I want to touch upon before we move off the subject of 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 witnesses and and the way that men are are handled in this film, uh, and it's more of a something for everybody to stew on. I think, I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed like we were kind of, of collectively critical when we talked about, uh, being a passive witness. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and maybe we didn't necessarily identify with that, but, and, and we're going to get into a religious thing here real quick. Oh, here we go. I'm touching on some religion. Praise Jesus. Uh, (laughs) Well, we're quite literally, (laughs) uh, the entirety of the new Testament is literally a book one of, well, it's one of the most important documents ever created of all time. I, regardless of your Absolutely. views of religion, you can't dismiss that. Like people have literally fought and died for this for for thousands of years. Uh, it, it was written by people who were passive witnesses. Entirely written by people that were passive witnesses. Uh, every one of the apostles that has a book in the the New Testament passively witnessed 
Christ die? Is it really a bad thing to be a passive witness if you're there to document what's going on? Journalism does the same thing. Journalists go into war zones and are passive witnesses. They take pictures, they write articles about what's going on, and that's it. They're not getting involved. But journalists write articles so that other people are aware so that they can do something and not be a passive witness. Would you say that that Klemperer wasn't doing the same thing by writing? No, no, no. In the sense of journalists, they're active witnesses. They're actively documenting. No, they're 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 documenting. But that is an act. But they aren't shooting a gun. They're not getting involved. No, but they're No, but they're they're physically there as it's happening. In the case of Klemperer. Are you saying that Klemperer wasn't? Yeah, no. He wasn't. Well, no, he was an act. He was a. Klemper was a passive witness in the sense that he's listening to women explain what had happened to them. But he's talking and about. He's talking about. I'm talking also about Klemper being a, a passive witness during the invasions of Nazis and having his wife tell mm, him that yep. shit was going down and him not listening. All I right. think journalists are active in the fact that maybe, yeah, they're not shooting a gun, but their gun is their article that rallies the troops and other people to do what they want to do. You can't, if you silence the press, then you're silencing the information. I'm not saying silence any of it. I'm just saying maybe there is a point of pa- for, for passive witnesses to exist. I am. Well, the, I, the, I, the examples that you're giving, though, they're doing something as a pass, passive witness. Are the apostles doing anything by writing about the story of Christ? Yes, because they're writing it to share with people. Klemper is not writing any of this shit down to share with anybody. How do you, well, Freud, Freud started off the same way and look what he did. You think he was doing anything aside from talking about... We, we mentioned Freud right here in this podcast, but you think he was doing anything aside from documenting what people were telling him? I mean, he was openly doing conferences. Yeah, he was doing research. Like yeah, you don't think that Klemperer isn't? They, they make no indication that he yes, is. Yes, they make no indication that he is. That's fair. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'm just saying like, that's know. the whole point of psychology in general, right? Is to document what's happening. Right. And I, and I understand yeah, and what he, you're saying, but... Yeah. He's a very... I mean, Klemperer is a very... Seemingly a very renowned. Yeah, he seems yeah. to be a relatively important. So I'm, I'm assuming right? he is sharing his findings. He's got some sort of findings, right? He's got some sort of view on what's going on, and whether or not it's right or wrong. But it, his he's was a also passive witness. But his was also too late. I'm not dismissing that. Yeah, I mean, Ultimately, I don't know. I think I think we're right in the sense that it is supposed to be a negative thing in the context of mm-hmm. this film. Really, I'm just trying to give you something to chew. If on. you see something, Palmer, you say something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's Eberdorf. Right. What's what that person? You, We're getting back to Red Scare era, boys. Let's do this. What, what's that <laughs> Is one? your neighbor a communist? Look, Let's Eberdorf would have said something. What's that TV show where they would like they do these scenarios and then they want you to do something and then they'll like what would you? It's called like with John Quinones. What would you do? They always like film in New Jersey. Have you guys not seen this show? I've never even heard of. Oh, this it's show. called What Would You Do? And they set up these like very bizarre like you know, like racially motivated, like just like really just like bullshit scenarios that right. like someone is like physically, not physically, but like just like verbally abusing another person. And they want to see if people will oh, step people in and involved. be like, huh. Hey, you stupid asshole. There was one actually <laughs> I saw the other day of this, of this homeless, uh, a guy in France who had a puppy with him. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that he loves this puppy so, so much. And these fucking, like, I don't know. I, there's no other way to describe it. It was on Reddit. It was no other way to describe it, but, but like, these fucking fascists, mm-hmm. like, come up to him, right? And they say, no, this dog isn't for you. You can't care for yourself. You can't, but care, you can't for care for this dog. You can't care for this dog, they yeah. They take the dog away from <gasps> him, and they go running off, right? They almost, like, assault. They push this man down. They this stole old, his dog. This guy. They stole his puppy. 
It oh, was Lord. a puppy. Oh, Lord. Mm-mm. And you can tell that this puppy is in good health. It's not... I'm sure that guy gives probably all... takes better care of that dog than he does himself. He absolutely does. Anyways, there was... It broke my heart watching the video. Did they get the dog there, back? Yeah, there was oh, an article God. that somebody linked in the Reddit comments that was... That was... that. Yeah, that, and he managed to press charges on the people. Good, because it's completely off topic, but you do read about a lot of people who are, like, homeless, and yeah, they actually end up taking... Yeah better care of their pets than who live on the street they do yeah. take better care of their pets than they do what they have in the world right themselves. yeah well it's your companion yeah, yeah. Exactly. there's that one picture where the guy has a coat on his jacket instead of him and it's freezing out <laughs> oh right yeah, yeah. yeah on, his, on, his, on his dog <laughs> on yeah, his yeah. dog um do we have final point we're getting we're getting to that time where we, we should are. probably start wrapping this up well we got one more thing to cover hit me what are we talking? Do it. Oh. The soundtrack. The, the soundtrack. soundtrack. Okay. I think I think we've covered pretty much everything else within reason. Yes. I've got plenty of other notes on like the <laughs> the, the the representation of witchcraft specifically, yes. but if you want to talk about anything, tweet us. Yeah, tweet yeah. us. I we can talk ad nauseum about this. Um, ultimately, women's empowerment, women's lib, and uh, you know, living with guilt. Sometimes you just got to do it and deal with it. Well, it's, Step I mean, up, make the right move. And not well, voting for me. <laughs> yeah, and vote for the right person next time. Are you going to get your head yeah. blown up? Yeah. Uh, soundtrack. That sounded very threatening when I said it. I did not mean it like that. <laughs> <laughs> she will literally blow your head up. Uh, soundtracks. I have I have a love-hate relationship with both of these soundtracks, if I'm going to be completely honest. Uh, the original one is, is really well known, uh, but I find it to be the least listenable when not accompanied by the film. Uh, unlike Goblin's other Argento-related works, Suspiria is really jagged and hard to digest when not taken in context with the the film itself. But when it's paired with the movie, it surpasses its source material and becomes another entity entirely, both yeah. enhancing the terror on screen and creating a mesmerizing tone that is engrossed, or that had me at least engrossed fully into the picture. Uh, I think Rolling Stone put it best uh, when they described the soundtrack as a throbbing. Prague Euro funk meets kitchen sink score. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Within the context of the movie, it is its own character. It is. Absolutely. Yes. If you remove the movie, it loses that context and it's very hard to deal with. And my opinion on the the Tom York take mm-hmm. on the latest Suspiria soundtrack is the exact opposite. I think it's uh a fantastic album. I bought it because I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. After listening to it a few times, it is a terrible soundtrack. <laughs> so As, let's aside from from one piece in particular, Volk. Yes, I think that is that is one of the points where where the movie and the soundtrack manage to sync up with one another and become something. It, it really makes that scene so much more mesmerizing than it would have been without that playing in the background. Was it in your notes that said that Tom York, when he was putting to the, the music together, he was doing it like he was casting spells? Yes. So let, let's let's talk about Tom Yorkie. Tom <laughs> I will All go right. ahead and say that I'm a humongous Radiohead fan. Okay. So. I am too. Okay. I am but Tom Yorkie on his own. <laughs> I, will, I will preface this by saying I appreciate Radiohead. I've never been a huge fan of them. I've never cared much for Tom York specifically. Tom Yorkie. <laughs> Uh, in fact, I have a number of jokes that I will Ooh. now share with the uh, listeners. Uh, Tom York writes jingles for fast food commercials, but Tom Yorkie writes scores for weird movies. 
Tom York wipes his ass with his bare hands, but Thom Yorkie wipes with the softest seven-ply toilet paper and uses a bidet. <laughs> and finally, Tom York listens to the radio, but Thom Yorkie's head is the radio. <laughs> I like that. That's good. That's, um, that's a good but last one. as Alex uh, had touched on, uh, there's a lot of weird stuff uh, regarding the way that he approached the score for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he can't and- actually read music. No, right. really? He can't read music. No, neither can I. Yeah, neither can I. But like, it's just, it's just. Sorry, I expected what? that differently from Radiohead. Yeah, like because especially since they do some very, very meandering pieces on their albums that that I would somebody in that band knows. Well, you guys do so meandering pieces in your music, and none of you guys can read music. I, I do it I, off feeling. I can't sight read. <laughs> yeah, we do it off. I feeling. can do that. <laughs> um, so it's one of the other members in his band. I can't remember the name. Um, I can't remember his name. I'd have to look it up. But We're not as good as you, Alex, okay? <laughs> no, I'm a terrible musician, but I can read music. He, he... I only have one hand, Palmer. I can't play very many instruments. <laughs> but you can do some really awesome costumes. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> um, one of the musicians in, in Radiohead, whose name I don't remember. Um, other guy on Radiohead. Other guy on Radiohead. Tom York cites him. Uh, a number of times in a handful of interviews about this, how he's responsible for a lot of um, kind of expanding Tom York's uh, like dynamic sensibilities. Okay. Um, he scored most of the movie before the movie was even filmed. He did a lot of it just off of reading the script um, because he didn't want to... He didn't want the movie to impose on him what the soundtrack should be. That is very apparent. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I even have a note in here that says that his soundtrack was as muted as the colors in the film, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes failing to act as a separate theme of the movie, whereas Goblin's soundtrack was very unsettling and very unnerving throughout. Mm-hmm. There are a handful of times, like Volk, as you mentioned, where York nailed it, but I think he too often missed the mark. Um, but in an interview with NPR, uh, York said that his a lot of inspiration came from the 1982 Blade Runner soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> music concrete artists such as Pierre Henry, uh, modern electronic artists such as James Holden, and music from uh, the film's 1977 Berlin setting, um, which is uh, often known as Krautrock. Krautrock? Krautrock. Oh, Lord. Um, You've never heard of Krautrock? No. <laughs> Um, he did say that there's a way of repeating in music that can be, or that can hypnotize. And I kept thinking to myself that it's a form of making spells, as you mentioned. Um, and so when I was working in my studio, I was making spells. I know it sounds really stupid, but that's how I was thinking about it. He was also asked whether or not, uh, he was surprised that his soundtrack became, uh, an album of its own. Right. Um, he said that he was initially surprised, but given his history with music, mm-hmm. um, both as a solo artist and with Radiohead, and the fact that he had, uh, right before recording everything for this, he had just built his studio, mm-hmm. um, which gave him access to all sorts of new gadgets and things that he's never played with that he was introduced to by members of Radiohead. Um, by the time he was finished... So what you're telling me is that this really was a Radiohead album. (laughs) No, this is a Tom York solo project album. With Radiohead gadgets. Yes. And I mean, it it absolutely was. Um, And I I mean, I think anybody that is a fan of Radiohead or is a fan of Tom York will probably instantly pick up on that. Yes. 
Because pretty apparent. I his album, like the the album by itself, stands alone at what two right. hours and four minutes or some yeah. shit. Yeah, it's absurd. It is, it, but it's quite good. It is. It is quite good as a separate product. It is quite good. I think it would have been better. The only, I mean, I don't really have any strong opinions about either of them. I think they're both very good. I think the only thing I could have said about the Tom York one was his vocals, I think for me was ruined it a little bit. There was Absolutely. obviously no vocals in the Goblin one. I think the first time one of those say witch. Well, yeah, yeah, except for like, the- like I cuz I know Palmer that's something you mentioned right after we saw the movie. Mm-hmm. Is and that I his agree vocals with that. took you out of it. Ripped me right out of the movie. The first time the vocals kick in, mm-hmm. I think, is the only time it works. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, because yeah. the movie is still kind of setting itself up. Yes. Introductory credits. We yep. get that introduction to Susie in the Academy. I think it yes. makes sense there. I think that's I the only time That's the only time. I would absolutely agree with you on that. And but that is also a really good song on the album. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but... That that's uh, like every time York's voice gets involved with anything, it's just like an immediate sense of melancholy, right? Like that's just it's, it's very. Just, it's just the way his voice is. Yeah, like that's just the way his singing style is. And like I said, I can forgive that with the introduction because I think it makes sense. But in that ending scene, this mm-hmm. is the first part. This is the first part that began to rip me out. Yeah, of, of the final scene of this film. Well, not the final, but the climax of this film. Uh, we're literally watching the, this coven die and become reborn, and power mm-hmm. is transferred, and we witness the birth of a new motherhood, and all this fucking shit. Right, right. Like, all these important <laughs> things are happening. All these crazy visuals. And Tom's like, <laughs> No, you're being too late. <laughs> but but yeah. but he he fucking ruins it. It ripped me right. Out it of it, yeah. it ripped me right out of it, and it it, it made me hypercritical of everything that was going on because I was in the zone, dude. Mm. I was there. I was melted into my seat. I was really enjoying everything, and then bam, York's voice. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> it's so that, between it that and me out of my slumber. Between dude. that and Tilda as uh, that Madame was the beginning, that was the beginning, the beginning yeah. of it, and then Tom's voice came in, and then I was like CGI blood. CGI blood. Why Stupid. am I watching CGI blood everywhere? <laughs> it's radio. Fucking, Tom York. fucking ruined it. it. Fucking ruined it. It should have yeah. been the most poignant part of the film, and the, and his voice comes kicking in, and it's just like, what the fuck? Yeah, for what me. What the fuck? Yeah. Save it for the ending. Roll credits, mm-hmm. dude. But don't fucking put it right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just it, it. For me, the 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 Volk dancing was the most intense climactic. Part yeah. of the movie yeah. when I think that their point was it for to be that scene, but it for me was not. I thought the most Maybe. intense part of the movie for you guys. Well, which Volk dance scene? Like when they're practicing when or when they're performing? When they're performing. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So when you guys are waiting to see if Sarah's leg is going to blow up in the middle so of the dance. I didn't breathe for six Ooh. minutes straight. <laughs> this was me. Yeah, I, I am covering my face. Making, making with, with my fingers and barely peeking through. That was me for the entirety of that scene. Yeah. The entirety of that I scene. I didn't, yeah, I literally didn't breathe and I didn't realize it until it was over and I was like. <gasps> so we, we, yeah. we made the brilliant decision to go see this almost three hour long movie mm. at nine o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On a, what, Tuesday a or Wednesday? It was a Wednesday. Wednesday. So when I got home, I immediately went to bed. I don't think I got to sleep until like one thirty that morning. Yeah. Because um, every time I closed my eyes, I would see the the, the red ropes whipping around. <laughs> but also when I laid down, it was the first time I realized that I felt like I didn't breathe for two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. I didn't move my body and I did not breathe. Yeah. It was not um, very intense. Which is really strange. But 
That one, yeah, it was it was Volk and the Hooks. I think was the, the other one. Yeah, that that I found to be very, very, very well done. Symbolic of Adam's ribs. Yes, is yeah. what they're supposed to be. Yeah, which I remember reading. Um, but those two tracks were 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 fantastic soundtrack pieces, and the rest is a standalone album. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even the the weird, bizarre, minute long, like vocal experimental stuff that he has going on on that album, it's still separate for me like i don't know it's just it's i'm on one hand i want to say i would be interested in seeing what tom york does if he ever is given the opportunity for doing another soundtrack on the other hand i'm scared to let this man have the opportunity (laughs) to have another soundtrack because i just don't know what's gonna gonna happen here um but I, i don't know i don't know how much more we can really talk about this let's let's jump into what what we liked uh, I guess about both of these films because ultimately that's what everybody's here for, right? Like, what uh, what film did you like more? Do you like the original more, Alex? Do you like the remake more? What are your thoughts? Let's hit, let's hit, let's hit them with this. Oh, this, this is, is what our listeners want. This is the question what they've what they've waited all this time to hear. I like the original, or I'm sorry, I like the remake. You more. like the remake more? I do. I, I, I like the I like fair. the reimagining more. Okay, everybody, all of the actors and actresses in the movie, uh, and even Luca himself refer to this more as a cover. A cover. It, it's a cover. <laughs> it's not a remake. It's not a reimagining. It's a cover. You're a cover. I am a cover. <laughs> so Sam, what do you what do you like more? I'm going to put them on equal footing. Okay. Because there's the enough... passive witness. No, no, no. <laughs> passive no, witness. Very much the active witness. I have a number of things that I like about uh, Luca's version much more than I like about Dario's version. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, specifically the things I didn't like. Um, one was the soundtrack. One was the color palette. Uh, one was the fact that for a modern horror film, in comparison to its source material, which also compared to a modern horror film, um, is fairly tame. Uh, the new one is also fairly tame. I disagree with that 100%. I think there were four sequences in a two-and-a-half-hour-long movie that would give it uh, the, the semblance of a horror film. Um, well, we're in, I mean, the, even the original one, the hanging part and like the barbed wire part, which well, I have quotations. Do you have that same feeling about Hereditary? No. Another two hour long movie that really only had a handful of sequences. That no, because that Hereditary. That sliced her neck off. <laughs> <laughs> that was crazy. Hereditary, in my opinion, and, and granted, this. It, it it's very possibly recency bias. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen this more recently than I've seen Hereditary, so Hereditary's had more time to soak in. Mm-hmm. I found Hereditary to be more suspenseful throughout than this one did. I would agree. Um, the dream sequences we talked about. I also feel like you know they tacked on sixty minutes of runtime compared to the original movie. Maybe fifteen, maybe twenty minutes too long. Which twenty minutes do you think they should take out? Knock out the dream sequences. You can. Those you can, are like two minutes. You can get rid of those. Uh, the the long dinner scenes because there's those. there's multiple ones you don't need all six of them. Well, in the first one, when they had Susie walking by, and they said specifically she needs to see us like this. It is good for her to see us like this, so she wants to like be engaged with them. No, I, and I understand that, but I don't know if the sequences need to be as seven long. minute dinner sequences for everybody. <laughs> 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 or get the fuck out. Um. I, like and, and don't get me wrong, I really did enjoy this movie, um, and I really do enjoy the original. Um, 
So I'll take it back. If if I'm if I'm going based on what I'm going to rate the movies, I think I'll like the new one more than the old one. Okay. What about you, Palmer? Old one. Okay. No uh, surprise there. Here's why. We actually already touched a lot on a lot of this. The soundtrack, the uh, effects, I found them to be pretty shoddy aside from, from, from two parts. The CGI blood really pissed me off. The Helena Marcos costume kind of pissed me off. Uh, the... Here's why the CGI blood pissed me off. Evil Dead. Mm. Which 2013. One. 2013. Had $3 million less of a budget, and they managed to make it actually rain blood for 10 minutes. Yes. They did do that. Which is why it should get a sequel. (laughs) (laughs) This should just be the thing you bring up in literally every podcast. So here's my question. Why couldn't they have pumped some sort of practical effect into this film? Why did they have to settle for CGI? Is it because Tilda Swinton is in like a $2 million fucking silicone suit for the majority of the film? Could that maybe have something to do with it? Because she's got a $200,000 pair of dick and balls dangling between her legs. You right. <laughs> those silicone uh, prosthetics are not cheap. Oh no, absolutely not. They're not cheap at all. And it's just one of those things where it's like, all right, like one, I applaud Tilda's acting prowess. I can't say that enough. I've said it multiple times already. But maybe the budget might have been better spent on just no. getting a dude. Nope. <laughs> Freud yeah, says no. Sigmund Freud says no. Sigmund Freud wants you to talk about your mother now. The, 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 <laughs> Well, <laughs> that'll add another hour and a half to this podcast. Uh, the dream sequences, I really didn't understand the point of them. I know we've kind of beaten this into the ground already, but they offered real no real insight into the film except for one point. They made a, one one made an allusion to the original with Klemperer because there's a point where the uh, there's an iris in his mouth mm. uh, as he's standing there looking shocked at Whatever the fuck he's supposed to be looking shocked at. We're mm-hmm. not really sure. Uh, and irises obviously were a big part of the original film. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that I could find that maybe tied or served any purpose. Was supposed to be some sort of nod to the original. But the this one goes in such a different direction that I'm not even sure that that was necessary. I think now that I've sort of researched more of like the themes and symbolism of the movie, I'd be interested to go back and look at the dream sequences again. And see, and yeah, see what more together. I can pick up. I don't know that they were shot the way that I would have shot them, a.k.a. it's not the ring. Right. But I think that this movie, especially the dream sequences, is the one part that I disliked about it, would benefit from... A sequential viewing. Yeah, and that's okay. the that's the hard part for me is trying to judge all of this when we crammed an almost three hour movie in on a night, and then well, and it's a very layered movie. Yeah, which and there's, there's so much going it's on. It's very heavy like, with the symbolism and all of this stuff. That's actually another another criticism that I have is maybe it's too dense. Uh, I think one of the things that that the original does so well is it hones in on exactly what it's trying to say. There's a clear battle of good and evil, and that's that's it. And I'm not saying that you need to strip it down to the bare bones of that amount, like this, like the original mm-hmm. was. But I wonder if it just tried to touch on too much I don't, in no. this. No, um, so yeah, I think that lends. All. I think that lends the potential for subsequent viewings to that's, focus that's, on other elements yeah, and continually dig in. Like, that's what I said in my notes. Is just um, like maybe the, my opinion will change over time. I but. feel like some of the, my favorite movies are ones that I've had to watch. Like I knew that I when I. Coming out of this movie, specifically the new one, I knew that there was so much about this movie that I missed. Yeah. And I was interested in learning more about it. And I literally cannot wait to watch it again. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, feel like the original was a great movie, especially for its time. And it's it's one of, in my opinion, one of the best 
you know, older movies out there, but I didn't watch it and be like, oh, there's a shit ton that I'm missing. Yeah. Right. And that's the type, but that's the type of cinema that, that's the type of movies that I like. And I don't dispute that. Like, that's generally what I like too. I like, I like there being some sort of depth and I'm a huge fan of open-endedness and trying mm-hmm. to leave things up to interpretation. But I felt, I just, I couldn't help but walk away from this being like, maybe they just crammed too much. And maybe that's where the subsequent viewings will change my opinion over time. We'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Because I will watch this again. Oh, absolutely. As soon as they put it on Amazon, which it will be on Amazon eventually, Mm -hmm. I will watch this again. We'll figure things out. Whether or not my opinion changes, uh, we'll see. But the other big point of contention for me is Chloe Grace (laughs) Moretz. I thought her acting was so poor in this movie. And every scene she was involved with, it ripped me out of it. Her character was jagged and shoddily written. She's playing this victim, but she's somehow the catalyst of the entire film at the same time. She's the backbone for all these events, but she exists for no other reason than to give Klemper information in every scene that she was involved with. I found myself rolling my eyes. Talk about additional makeup effects that I had huge issues with. I don't know what the fuck is going on with her character at the end of the day. She's like rotting? Is she a zombie? I have no idea. But she looked like she was very clearly covered in like paper mache. <laughs> I think she's supposed to be essentially like an empty vessel. Well, she's supposed to be the broken one that they last tried to yeah. get to be Susie. Is that what that is? Yeah, yeah. they talk about the, they talk about it in She's a couple like of a those telekinetic zombie. ones. Yeah, she was supposed to be. Well, no, by the end, like the uh, so at the start of the movie, she's got this like stilted, paranoid, psychotic kind of very jilted mannerism and yeah. actions around her because at that point they she's had been- broken. But it still doesn't dispute the fact that she was so fucking bad. Like in this she just movie. didn't. And she just didn't do a good she job. She didn't do a for good job. She didn't do that character I justice. Fine. I thought she was fine. I didn't think I that she was. Shot. She was awful. I thought that. And I'm not uh, usually a bad. I don't. I don't hate Chloe Grace Moretz. No. I don't dislike her that much. I just like this movie. Like I walked away from it. My immediate reaction was, I really don't want to see her in anything else. Yeah. She was no. <laughs> she was no Mia Goth, who was amazing. Yeah, she was really good. She no. Was yeah, good. but Chloe Grace Moretz's character was just supposed to. Be, yeah, they were. She was supposed to be the vessel. And okay. it failed. I and must then, have missed on that. Yeah. And then entirely. she and then she freaked out and like Yeah, she was supposed to be the vessel, she was broken and it failed. And it but, failed. Which is why the which is why there were all those conversations about how um she Marcos went, wanted to go ahead and move along with Susie, but Tilda, Tilda was like, No, she's not ready because this Because look what know, happened last time. Yeah. You fucked it up. Um Okay, yeah, I must have missed out on all that. And but so when they found her in the basement or whatever, in the, the that's where they were just storing all the girls. Is that she was essentially a a a vessel with no yeah she, there was nothing that's left. Where they, in, that's yeah, where they, they found her. That's where they found Olga. Yeah. Right, right. I know that. But there was nothing know, like, left I, inside I of her. Must have missed. I yeah. just must have missed that transfer that she was supposed to be the first. Mm. the yeah. first attempt at this. Um, uh, I got one more quick pro and one more quick con. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's related to the people in the movie. Um, special shout out, um, mad props to recasting Jessica Harper mm. as Anka. Yeah, that was awesome. That was really cool to see the original Suzy um, gets a new role in this movie. Um, <laughs> however, in the same vein, the one thing that I miss from the original movie was a Miss Tanner like role. Mm. Yeah, Miss Tanner in the original was fantastic, and yeah, I loved she, her she role. Was quite good. She absolutely I loved her was. mannerisms. I loved kind of that like domineering sensibility that didn't seem to exist with any of the other instructors at uh, the Marcus Academy in the new movie. I could see that. 
I think that all of the women specifically in the original were such commanding presences in their own way. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of, maybe because there were more characters at the Academy, um, and they focus more, although they focus more on characters, there were so many more that I feel like you didn't get the stories. But in the original, every single, I would specify, woman in that movie had like this very commanding presence yeah. in their acting. They were all like, oh shit. I would agree. So let's get to the ratings. The original film. What are we giving it? Uh, three point. Uh, what's it out of first? Out of the original one? Yes. Oh. Suzzies. All right, out of Suzzies. <laughs> How many Suzzies are we giving this one? I'm going to give it a 3.8. A 3.8? Oh, okay. No, I, I'm sorry, a 3.7. Three. Okay, all right. It's still higher than I was expecting. All right, 3.7. Sam, what are you giving the original? Uh, three and a half. All right. Three and a half Suzzies. I'm a 3.9. Okay. On this one. So what is this going to end up being? A 3.7 is our, our final score, our cumulative score for that one uh the remake three so it increased from when i walked it out. did you did yeah, say like a two point something. something i was at a two seven five when i walked out it's at a three sammy i think i was at a three seven five when we walked out no i thought you were at a four i might have been at you a were four. at a four i'm gonna keep it at a four then okay, okay. i it, was at a okay. it's, it's, it's a very wobbly four you were at like a four i was a point for eight seven yeah you love, yeah. I'm you, a five. I really liked it. You're five. five. Yep, wow. I'm giving it a five. Okay. I'm obsessed with this movie. No, mine, mine is a very wobbly four. I could easily see it go. Like, the lowest I would give this is a three and a half. I don't know if I'd ever give it a five. I would call this a triumphant masterpiece. To each their own. Yeah, I, and I don't. I don't know if I'd ever give it a five. I could. I think give the only it other like movie I've given. A, I think the only other movie I've given a five so far is. Hereditary. Didn't you give the original Halloween a five? Oh yeah. Well, obviously. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Rosemary's Baby. Well, we're talking and new think, ones though. And I, no, yeah. And I think I gave and I gave Hereditary a five also. Okay. So yeah, four for me. All five right. for me. Four four tildes for me. That ends up being uh, yeah. It's 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 four tildes in total from us. We didn't get any point six six sixes this week. That's, that's right. right. I feel like that's okay. Yeah, I feel like with, with the witchcraft okay. has enough six six sixes on its own. <laughs> Just kidding. Witchcraft and Satanism are not connected. <laughs> Uh, ask Netflix about that. <laughs> <laughs> ask the Church of Satan about that. Yeah, that too. All right, now for the housekeeping. To keep up with all the latest Terror and Podnito information, you can follow the cast on its official accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Terror and Podnito. You can also reach us at email uh, cast at terrorinpodnito.com. You can follow us individually too. I'm Palmer at Stormsworth. I'm Alex at A Looters. I'm Sam at Sam Heaves, and we know how many of you listen every week, and I don't have that many followers yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, so click that button. Yeah. I'm almost yeah. up to like 2,000 followers. Yeah, I'm nowhere near that. Alex, <laughs> Alex pulled, I got over 100, and then it stagnated. Than the actual fucking podcast does. <laughs> she needs to be in charge of our social media now. Right? Seriously. <laughs> uh,. Review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all that stuff. Although apparently you can't. Somebody tried to review us on Stitcher the other day and said you can't. Oh, for real? Yeah. Apparently Stitcher does not allow for reviews. So don't review us on Stitcher. Just review us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. I don't know if you can on Spotify either. I don't know. Review us where you can. And if you can't, well then Send us an email. (laughs) We like it. Uh, Thanks for listening to this week's episode. This was a long one. So I hope you all made it to the end. We'll be back next week. What are we covering next week? 
Train to Busan. Oh, Train to Busan. Yeah. Alicia. As, as recommended by Alicia. Alicia, our OG fan, our yeah. first fan, sitting back there when our audio quality was horse shit. I know, listening with the headphones. <laughs> <laughs> Through headphones. What a, uh, we love you, Alicia. You're the best. Uh, yeah, so Train to Busan's next week. We're continuing with our fan service, and uh, we'll see you all then. Take care, everybody. Keep it creepy.